is like him performing the gold experience at Glam Slam LA and me being too young to get in. So Yeah, I've been I've I've dealt with some of those things. The one time I had an opportunity to go see Thomas Dolby. I used to love Thomas Dolby in the eighties and I had a ticket to his concert and I was like so excited. I was raring to go. And then for some reason he changed the venue into a, a club that was only twenty one and up and I didn't get to go and I was like, son of a And sometimes there was shows that were 18 and under, but or 21 and under, and there was no Uber back then. There was no Lyft. I didn't have a car, so yeah, those were fun. Well, luckily I lived in Atlanta, so I was able to you know hop on up, you know, hop on Marta and just just go down, go wherever I wanted to go. And for for whatever reason, my my mother could really care less about. I mean, I was you know. 14, 15 years old, going by myself. And I've got, you know, daughters that age, and I can't, well, a little bit older, but I could not imagine, I could not imagine just letting my kids just jump on a on a bus and go to downtown Atlanta to go see a show and then come back at any point. That's insane. That's insane. How far, how far away did you live from Turtles? Um, well, actually, when I was, um, when I camped out for tickets to per- to go see Purple Rain, we camped outside of Turtles record store for like two days. And um, it was like it was ridiculous. I mean, we, I, my mother, or I think it, maybe it was his mother. I can't remember who I was with. We hung out and we were like, they brought us sandwiches and stuff, and we were literally just trapped there because we had we were waiting for tickets and people were just thinking we were crazy or whatever. But before we, even though we were there that early, the the first two shows still sold out before we even got up to the to the counter. And then he goes, oh, we added three more shows. They added three more shows. Which, which show do you want? And I said, one ticket to each. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. Exactly. I, yeah, uh, that's, that's a story right there. But, yeah. Um, so, you know what I realized I didn't have from you the other day? I realized I don't have a bumper from you. You can say, this is Dr. Funkenberry, and you're listening to Funkatopia. I can play it on the radio station. That's cool with me. Yeah, uh, would, yeah so just, just do one, whatever. Go ahead. Right now? Sure. What's going on? This is Dr. Funkenberry, and you're listening to Funkatopia right here, right now. Perfect. That's awesome. All right. You ready to go into this? It'll be fun. I think you'll get, you'll, you'll get the hang of it. It's, Sounds it's, good, man. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. I'm very excited. All right. All right. So here we go. Um, normally, there'll be a little bit of theme music playing, so I'll give it about uh, 10 seconds of silence, and then I'll... I'll start in, and yeah, you'll get the hang of it. All right, here we go. It's Mr. Christopher with the Funkatopia Radio Show. Welcome, welcome, one and all. We are having a great time here, and uh, as always, we're doing Funkatopia Live which means that we're either doing some kind of crazy radio show where we're talking about this, that, or the other. Most of the time, it's pretty much Prince-related, or we're doing an album chat, and it's normally a Prince album chat, right? So this time around, we are actually going to be doing the album chat for The Gold Experience, Prince's first album as uh, the symbol of sorts, uh, the love symbol. 
And, you know, we always try to make sure that we either get somebody who is involved in the creation of the album, or if we can't, which we typically don't really have a whole bunch of access to, but we normally try to make sure that we have somebody really special on board to kind of come along for the ride, and this time around is no different. Would you please welcome Mr. Dr. Funkin Mr. Dr. Funkenberry. Dr. Funkenberry's in the house. What's up, man? The thing about this, that, what, where, how is about the freaks doing everything they want to do now. What's up, everyone? How you doing, man? What's up? What's up? So, yeah, so we're going to be talking about the Gold Experience, which is his 17th studio album. Of course, you know, we're not yeah. talking about all the little things and, and whatnot that are in there and whatnot, but... You know, when I we were talking, you know, we were talking, been talking on the phone off and on. And when I told you I was going to be doing this album chat, and you said that you were interested in, in being involved in it because this album really meant a lot to you. What I mean, kind of give me a little bit of background about what what it is about this album that really holds a special place in your heart. Man, that that's that's tricky. But there's just so many things. I mean, first, this is an album that we were told we were never going to get. You know, I got a little flyer in the mail. Uh, of course, I had a different configuration of the track list that had Days of Wild and Interactive and um, a couple other things on there. And it just said, release date, never, to get this free, write it to Warner, write your Warner Brothers to see this album get free. And it's just, it was such an interesting time. You know, I know right now we're kind of stuck in the 80s with stuff coming out, but there was so much stuff happening in the 90s. Um, and even though this album came out in 1995, there was other stuff that was making it happen. Like when we went to see Prince in 1993, a different version of Come that ended up on the Come album was played before he took the stage. But it's just, you know, there was the name change, what he was going through with Warner Brothers, it made stuff so interesting. And then there was a plethora of unreleased music just being put up on TV, whether it was a beautiful experience on the Japanese uh, special or um, The Undertaker. And just the amount of unreleased music that we were having to dig and find in LA record stores was just amazing. And it just seemed like it was another creative outburst, the first really maybe explosion since Sign of the Times. Um, and it's just special to me. And to me, the Gold Experience is one of those albums that they should be putting up with Purple Rain and Sign of the Times. The Gold Experience to me is one of his best records of the 90s and one of his best records, period. You know, and it just, it still sounds great to this day. Yeah, it's it's one of those albums that really kind of had a, a long, twisted history. Obviously, many of you know that what ended up primarily happening in that regard was that, you know, Prince had given, we had talked about this on the last album chat, we did the album chat for Come, is that Prince had given Come and the Gold Experience to Warner Brothers at, at, at the exact same time. And he wanted them to release them at the same time. He wanted the, the Prince one to be released under Prince. And of course, that's why the album cover had his birth to death dates on there. And then as far as the the gold experience, that was going to be, he wanted it to be released underneath as the love symbol. And and essentially Warner Brothers just said, no, that's not happening. We're, we're, we're not doing that. So they sat on it for a really, really long time. That in itself was just interesting that, you know, they went to such great lengths to try to make sure that, you know, that 
that album just really sat on on the shelf for a really long time. But you know, that's some of the things that we're going to talk about here today. And also, we're going to play the tracks like we always do on the album chat. So it's going to be lots of good stuff, lots of good music that is going to be coming up. And of course, uh, it's going to be great to also have on board Dr. Funkenberry here in the mix to make sure that. You know, any of those little stories that he has about the history and whatnot of the of the album, you know, he can kind of add to hey. it. So, man, it's going to be fun. You ready? I am 100% ready. I've been looking forward to this all week. Yeah, it's going to be fun. So blast. let's do it. Yeah, let's, let's do it. it. Let's do it. All right, so let's, uh, let me, still got those level issues. Hold on. <laughs> yeah, every now and then it kind of happens where, oh, that's maybe too much. All right, we still there? Yeah, okay, we're good. We're good. This is much better. Yeah, that's much better. All right, so again, this is The Gold Experience. It is Prince's 17th full-length studio album, released in September of 1995, 13 months after his previous release of the album Come, and 11 months after WB released The Black Album. So Warner Brothers had kind of not only been doing a lot of weird things as far as how they were kind of prepping this album, because he had given them so much material that they really were going to make sure that they kind of did it in a really specific way. And, and we're going to talk, again, we're going to talk a little bit more about that, because it, Warner Brothers wasn't trying to be the evil one here. It was just, it, there were some things that were going on that Prince just couldn't really understand because of the volume of work that he was creating and he wanted Warner Brothers to really kind of support him as he was cranking out this music but Warner Brothers also had a plethora of other artists that they also had to support and so there was only certain budget allocations they could do they couldn't just always be at Prince's whim to kind of continue pushing this stuff out so that's the reason why a lot of the a lot of the feedback kind of you know ended up being very, very negative because for us Prince fans, all we were hearing was Prince's side, but there was a lot more that was going on in the background. It is the first album to be released under the name with the love symbol after Prince changed his name in 1993 to that unpronounceable symbol. And if you played the interactive video game, the female cyborg on the game mentions that Prince had died so that NPG may live. And as I said, keep in mind that Prince had already moved on from this album because he gave it to Warner Brothers over a year before, along with the album Come, and and essentially it just kind of be sat was sat on for a while. And that and a year in Prince's world is like three to four years in most bands' lives. So he had essentially had written and recorded the equivalent of three more albums at that point. So his heart just wasn't really completely in it. He he just even when he was doing press jaunts for Come he was pushing the Gold Experience album because I don't think he realized that Warner Brothers was going to sit on it for as long as that they did. And so by the time it actually came out, he, you know, he was pretty much disheartened and aggravated by the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he did Letterman uh, the year before in December for Dolphin, and then it wasn't out until September of the next year. And I think even Uptown was calling it the old experience by the time it got released because it was older to him. And it's just so frustrating because it is such a great album and deserved it. And who knows if, if Warners would have agreed to release come and the gold experience at the same time, who knows what it would have been and how it would have been received and his interest in it. I do know that they wanted the most beautiful girl in the world to be from the gold experience to come since he, they weren't going to release both at the same time. 
Uh, but he refused to move it because hello, the whole concept of come was one album, one song title, and most people in the world, uh, that's more than one song title. Um, yeah. it's just, it's just, it's just frustrating. Although the music is so fresh and so good to know that that music was made more so in 94 and early 94 and then wasn't released until late 95 is pretty sad. Yeah, that, that, that is actually sitting on that for just way too long. And, and this had actually been something that had been kind of in his works for a little bit because, you know, it was actually compiled in early 1994 from a bunch of things. And it was originally going to be called The Gold Album like, to kind of tinker. Because I guess he knew that the Black Album was coming out. So he was he wanted to kind of put together something that was called The Gold Album. But it ended up the name ended up changing. Uh, once the configuration started changing as well. And that gold album, I'm using air quotes, that gold album configuration had the songs Space, which ended up on Come, uh, Rip a Pop Goes to Zippa, uh, Interactive, both which ended up on Crystal Ball, and of course Interactive. You know, if you, if you had, did you have, did you have the video game? I did. Yes, I did. Now, if you took that video game and you actually put it in the CD-ROM, or not in the CD-ROM, the computer, but you actually put it in a CD player, the first track was all the computer noise and a bunch of you know screeching and whatever else. But if you skip to the second track, it was interactive. That was actually on there. It was actually, it was actually the, a playable track on that video game. And if you have that, you can still do that to this day. And yeah. uh, I actually found a website that actually allowed you, you actually, and, and I'm going to just tell everybody this, if you go onto Google and you search for Prince Interactive Video Game, there is a website that allows you to download that video game for free. I don't know what why you can do that. It's not, but it's like wide out, wide open out there. It's not anything nefarious that you have to do. I guess just because it's discontinued and they don't care anymore. Um, but it's, uh, you can download it for windows or Mac, but you, you have to, there's some other, or if you're on a Mac, you have to do some kind of configuration, but I, I've always thought maybe I should replay that game because it seemed like it was. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. hot. That's I, pretty I enjoyed awesome. the game and I did that with the CD player too. Um, <laughs> it's pretty great. And I enjoyed that game, um, big time just to get through this stuff. And now the video is playing, of course, interactive. And then at the end, endorphin machine from top of the pop so that was really cool yeah but also on that gold album configuration was also um uh, days of wild strength uh-huh. strength which is unreleased and cover versions of uh graham central stations the jam which we've all probably heard but on, and also rolling the rolling stone song angie and mm-hmm. i have not have you heard angie I've n- i haven't heard him his version of angie i haven't exactly looked out for yeah, that's, I mean, I would be really interested to hear Prince do that song. That'd be, I can't, that would be haunting. I mean, there's so many times and so many different configurations that went through. I mean, Acknowledge Me on that at one time was yep. on the Gold Experience. And of course, that song dated really quickly, to be honest, um, when you're going for the new Jack style. But I really did like Acknowledge Me. And of course, he did that on Soul Train Awards, uh, excuse me, on the Soul Train show in 94 where he did that with Love Sign, which ended up on 1-800-NEW-FUNK and Beautiful Girl remixes. So yeah. what an interesting... See, that's why it was such an interesting time because this music was coming out, but in different ways, and we couldn't exactly buy it on CD unless uh, yeah, bootleg, you know? Right, yeah. But as far as, you know, where he was in that regard, you know, remember, he's, he's kind of sitting there waiting for this album to eventually be released. And once it finally did... Once it did actually get a release date, he actually toured 
pretty heavily in 94 and 95. There were mostly one-off shows, but he also did a lot of things through the Ultimate Live experience. And it was focused heavily on playing tracks from the album, and the tour itself was not very successful. You know, you know, when you think about the fact that he sold out 21 nights in London in the 2000s, this tour that happened in 1995, there were times where it was not sold out, and there was a couple nights in the she- uh, being reported in Sheffield Arena in uh, England where there was only like half full. And it began to take a toll on the show itself, and he started to cut back on production costs once he realized that it was going to start seriously causing him money. Because you got to remember, Warner Brothers is not behind this because at this point in time, there's not, there's not really, they're not really concerned about pushing an album that they haven't even officially released yet. And so Prince was kind of handling things on his own. And but the tour featured, the tour was really bizarre. It featured Prince appearing out of the quote-unquote endorphin machine which was like a this huge structure like a womb and it was they had this huge structure this huge gold penis on one side and a, and a vagina on the other and it was like all just bizarre and um then the endorphin machine uh, the center would slowly move to the front of the stage on this conveyor belt but when the money started to look really really thin in this tour he started leaving huge bits of it behind in various places and um i think one of the production artists said that you know most of the stuff was left behind in london so it's it's kind of bizarre i wonder whatever happened to a lot of that stuff is just probably just sitting in just various places on the five and dime now that you brought it up (laughs) (laughs) okay uh and, and plus over the course of that tour he would fire several sound engineers because he wasn't really ever happy with the the volume of of uh work that he was getting out of them and eventually the board was it wasn't like this in the beginning for surprisingly enough but they had the board moved into that womb section where prince could go back into the womb and mix it himself inside there and i just like that's just crazy but what's even crazier to me is that he even asked people to bring their tape players to some of the shows, which is insane. I mean, you're talking about somebody who was very, very anti-bootleg. But at the time, he was under the impression that Warner Brothers was never going to release this album. So he was telling people that, you know, you're not going to get to hear this material at any point because this album is never going to see the light of the day. And so let's, you know, go ahead and, and bring your tape player because, you know, I really want you guys to hear this great stuff and it's just not going to happen. And uh, yeah. I'd never heard of him ever, you know, actively telling people to to bring tape recorders and, and actually bootleg shows but i guess he just didn't feel like you know all this great material was ever going to get seen or heard more or less yeah um uh, and it's just that's what was so interesting time like i said the, the bootlegs of stuff and we didn't have you know a prince ball or these other places that would have like a track list when you do a show immediately you get Uptown Magazine and other stuff, but then you would go to record stores and then you'd be seeing, like at the 1993 Act 2 tour, you start seeing songs popping up called uh, Endorphin Machine or Black MFs in the House. And you're just, you're getting this stuff out there. And of course, I do feel at that time, because it was serving a purpose, kind of like an FU to Warner Brothers, that if you're not going to let me release this music, it's going to get out in different ways, whether it's from shows being recorded at Bataclan or whatever. Um, it's just every single time I look at the back of back of a CD, there would be a new song that I didn't hear. And it was just 
that's how it was. And then, of course, him telling people to record the show or whatnot, it just showed that at the, at, he was kind of giving the FU to Warner Brothers that go ahead, put this show on recorder. And I would pay attention to the reviews, although they weren't good. Like, I'd look at NME Magazine from overseas. I'd be looking out for stuff like that all the time. And, of course, he didn't have the machine behind him at the time. So is that why he got some of the bad reviews? Because he was on Warner Brothers' naughty list, so to speak. It did... It did kind of, the stage was so big and there wasn't as much going on except for Prince and Maite that may have played into it, but I always have a deep appreciation for that tour because of, the, of those music, the music, but there isn't a lot of uh, DVD footage or video footage of it out. I think there's a couple of shows and it's rather unfortunate. Yeah, it was kind of a, it was, it was just slowly pulled back because he realized that most of the costs that were being eaten up were primarily because of the production costs that were involved with moving those huge pieces of stage equipment around and, and whatnot. I mean, when you think of tours that he used to do, like Love Sexy, where he had the cars coming out and the huge swings and all that stuff, I mean, those types of productions, I mean, cost millions of dollars. And then yeah. on top of that, I mean, well, you got the one-time cost of actually creating them, but then at the same time, you've also got the process of having to, you know, move it from one location to the other. And it's a huge cost difference when you can put everything that needs to be on the stage in one semi-truck as opposed to four or five semi-trucks. So they just started to cut corners. Michael Bland said that the other part of the issue, as far as the money was concerned, was that people had been coming to the shows and they were all wanting to hear the hits. And I would imagine that a lot of the, um, the people that actually came, even the, the reviewers themselves, were, were kind of a little bit you know, disgruntled by that. But Prince wasn't giving them any hits. He was more concerned, wanted to make sure that people got a chance to hear what was on the Gold Experience album. Right. And, and when the word started to get out that he wasn't playing any of the hits, it started hurting the ticket sales for people who, you know, may have been on the fence or, you know, maybe that's, they just weren't like super fans who wanted to hear new material. They wanted to hear the Purple Rains and the, you know, the, the Raspberry Berets and the Kiss, and they wanted to hear all this stuff, and it just simply just wasn't happening. But Michael Bland said that Prince told him, you don't know what it's like to be on a hit tour with a hit movie playing the same Purple Rain guitar solo the exact same way 91, uh -huh. 91 times in a row. If you change one thing, people go crazy. And he said it was torture for him to do yeah. things the same way every single night. And uh, I, I can only imagine that's that's a lot of truth, a lot of truth to that. One hundred percent. I mean, you got you got to look at things like that. And when he would do Prince songs, he would say they're doing a cover and it'd be Peach or something like that. But it's just. It was so interesting to me because that would fly in a club, like if he was playing in Glam Slam Minneapolis or Glam Slam LA or Yokohama or South Beach, you know, but of course when you're trying to attract uh, tens of thousands, it's not going to go over as well. They want to hear the hits, but it was frustrating. I know the performing tour was just, he couldn't wait for that to get over, and I think as we now know, when you're listening to rehearsals from the Purple Tour, especially towards the end, that he was playing Temptation or Love, and Mo Love or Money and all this other stuff, and he, were having, he was having such a good time to where, unlike Purple Rain, it was the same formula every night, and someone like Prince, he just can't deal with that. Yeah, that, that um, was the only, I think it was the only concert tour. I've seen pretty much every concert tour since Purple Rain, actually since 1999, um, I saw every single concert tour with a couple of the exception of a few that happened in the 90s. 
And Purple Rain was probably the only one that I can think of. 1999, yeah, but, but Purple Rain was probably the only one that I can think of that was very, very specifically set in a very step-by-step, -step, I'm going to be here, I'm going to be here, I'm going to do this, go do that, we're going to play this song, we're going to play that. And everything was very, very structured. None of his, none of his shows were, are, are typically structured like that. And Purple Rain was just unusual in that regard, for sure. Yeah. Um, but there was also, you know, the politics were so fierce. Uh, Fafu, who was the drum programmer on that tour, uh, he actually said that in Brussels, Prince had the crowd chanting, Prince is dead, Prince is dead, during parts of the show. So he really was kind of doing everything he possibly could to make sure that, he just wanted to make sure that in that, in that sense, that Warner Brothers really didn't have an artist named Prince anymore on their label. He was doing everything he possibly could to kind of upstage or up, well, just kind of uproot that, you know, any progress that they had. So I thought it was kind right. of interesting. What did you, when he did the name change, what was your perception on that? Oh my God. Like, see, all right. At the last LA shows in April of 1993, before he did Party Man, he came out and he goes, you know, if I change my name, what would you call me? And kind of like the crowd was a little bit silent, of course. And then he's like, you know, if you're always with me, you never have to call me. And then he went into Party Man. But then here it is. Again, no internet, no no anything. It was his birthday, June 7th, 1993. I was watching it for tonight because... I was a pretty big fan to where, hey, them mentioning his birthday on a thing is kind of cool for me. And at, at the at the top of the show, they're going through news items, and then they play my my name is Prince. And I was like, my name is Prince. I go, well, apparently it isn't. The the Minneapolis artist changed his name to an unpronounceable symbol today, and I was just like, what? He changed his name to the symbol, and I go. <laughs> And then the press ate it up oh, yeah. for days, asking people to come up with a name for the symbol and all these other things. And of course, they said a lot, some, a lot of many not, not so nice things, but it was getting him headlines and getting him talked about. But I just thought, okay, remember, after the LA shows, he retired from studio recording. He was gonna retire from touring, except in a multimedia format. So here it is. Now the name change is happening. You're kind of like, what is going on? Right. And again, this is what adds to the whole thing of what an interesting era this was and just intriguing because who's going to change their name to symbol? I'm not, I'm not going to change. Like, look, my name is Jeremiah Freed. We can go by Dr. Fungaberry or whatever. I'm not going to change my name to a stethoscope with like a horn through it or whatever. But <laughs> Prince wanted to be called the symbol and this is it it's just like when when he was going by the artist or whatever or how that got out whatever prince wanted me to call him i was going to respect him and call him that's just how how it was and how it is and i go through things so the symbol to me was now his new thing but of course my friends and other people that already thought i was weird because i listened to prince were just looking at me like yeah yeah you're listening to someone real normal bruce springsteen gonna be changing his name to the american flag and with jeans or anything but it was an interesting time and an interesting concept for sure for the name change 
Yeah, I, I think I think they really. It, it was one of those things, definitely for people that were you know that knew that you were Prince fans, and and I, I experienced this too. People would come up and go, "So what are you calling him?" It's like, well, I'm I'm calling him Prince. I mean, obviously, if I'm like in front of him, and you know, that's a totally different story. But you know, if I'm just talking amongst my friends and whatnot, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not gonna go along with this silliness thing that he's doing he's doing it for a very very specific political business reason so that's all fine and dandy but you know we're, we're having normal conversations it's prince it's prince you i know. mean i got made fun of like you gotta understand there was no oh yeah no other... i know <laughs> we all did. I didn't, I didn't have another prince person that had my back unless i went to the concert because i didn't know anyone right so i'm just having to like fight my own battles of like, oh, he's doing it over because of his record label because of this. And I'm like, dude, we just say he's crazy. We just say he's crazy. We just stop with this. It was frustrating. It right. was hard to be a fan, as interesting as it was. Like, man, you know, I couldn't wait to get a symbol on my car because then there would be people that stopped me, although it would be once every few months. But they got it. They understood, you know, but... My other friends just didn't understand. You know? Well, and then on top of that, the publicity side of things too. I mean, he was, you know, took on that also that persona of Tora Tora, which uh, it's a thing the Japanese war cry means lightning attack or something like that. But he uh-huh. would he would wear his red jacket with a black shirt, and his face would be covered in like this stretchy red fabric that said the Exodus has begun all over it, and it was uh-huh. like, and I mean, he was really he was really thinking that that w that wb was out to get him but the, the reality of it was is that all of the record executives it really i mean they were that's a, their bread and butter they didn't really have any ill will towards him but they just needed him to understand that there's a science to the way that albums get released and that he wasn't the only artist on their label and you know we were talking with um when i was talking with tony m when we were doing the album chat for gold nigga he was he reflected on that a little bit he just said that you know prince really wasn't he he said, you know, if I'm releasing albums, if if I'm underneath you and I create music and I hand it to you, then that means that it's your job as the person that or the business that's representing me to put it on wax, put it on CD, do whatever you got to do, and get it out there to the masses. But they only had a certain budget allocation to deal with certain people at each particular time. And Tony was like, you know, they 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 had a budget that they had to meet. Lionel Richie's got an album coming out at this point. Mariah Carey's got one coming out here, or Madonna's. Got one coming out there. They've got certain budget allocations that they have to do, but you've got one artist that's handing you three, four albums a year. I mean, that's fantastic. But on the same note, it's like we don't. It's that's not. We can't do that because there's a there's a there's a life, and it's definitely nowadays. Nowadays, you can he could have this right now where we are right now as far as how music gets distributed is exactly where Prince needed to be in as far as you know to be able to we could actually keep up with his his constant music releasing we, we, we now now we can do that but back then in the 90s nobody not everybody had computers and, and internet and everything else so it was it was a scenario where there was a process that had to happen you had to get the music you had to press the cd you had to make the vinyl you had to get it out to the stores you had to make agreements with the stores and the stores had to be able to agree to actually purchase a certain amount of, amount from you to actually distribute them and the only way that they were going to be able to do that is they got to know that it's going to be able to leave their stores so they can actually make money and not get stuck with inventory there was a whole process involved and prince just wasn't having that he was just like i'm creating it here it is put it out and i think that's just the way that's the reality of of what was happening there anyways 
process was too slow, and I want to go back a few oh, years. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. You had Graffiti Bridge come out, and it bombed. He was ready. It wouldn't have had Get Off on there, and it would have been sounded a little bit different. But he was ready two months after Graffiti Bridge came out to put Diamonds and Pearls out. He wanted... Because it bombed. There was no saving it. He didn't want to put out any more singles from it. Warner Brothers salvage stuff where they put out Melody Cool and they had her go on Arsenio. Same with Tevin Campbell round and round, which salvaged it for him and gave him his first top 10 hit, I believe. But the album bombed and Prince was wanting to move on with quickness for Diamonds and Pearls. They were like, nope. You know, and then finally, you know, you know, to get the first single out June, a Get Off, which is a totally different version that ended up on the album. And then Diamonds and Pearls wasn't out until October the following year then here it is he's already on the symbol album you know his new rock opera which we know totally was inspired by Queen and what was going on Bohemian Rhapsody and, and Freddie Mercury's death um, a total inspiration for it night the opera his own thing and here it is that he keeps recording stuff Miles Davis passes away he wants to include that but now it's too long to conclude on a CD and then like, you know, the whole tracks that with Chrissy Alley, there was some stuff left out because I Want to Melt With You was supposed to be a bonus for cassette only. So here it is. He's already had this stuff to where they're already behind a year because of him wanting to get out down to pearls so quickly after Graffiti Bridge flopped. I wouldn't say it's a failure because I still like the music from it in question of you and other stuff uh, means a lot to me. But then his birthday in 1993 is falling on release day Tuesday. And because of leap years, it's not going to fall on it for another decade. So he wanted to release a five-song EP that had Hope, Peach, Come, and two other songs that uh, had one-word titles, I believe, Endorphin Machine. Um, and Warners was like, no, because now that $100 million contract was signed that he really wanted, and they're like, no, you have to sell 5 million copies of your previous album, or you have to give $5 million of the $10 million advance back. And this is where it all went sour. This is what led to the name change and other stuff, is because now he can even release a five-song EP, which is just an extended play. It's like a maxi single, and he was able to do that with uh, Gangster Glam and Clock and the Jizz and all that stuff. <clears throat> so here it is, though, that in 1991, and this is, I don't like to play this little card, and we know that, but in 1991, Guns N' Roses was able to release a two, two different releases, Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2, and the only track that was repeated on both of those was November Rain, which is an amazing song, and yes, Guns N' Roses wasn't putting out material like Prince, but they made such a big deal about both of these albums coming out and having midnight sales. And here it is, they're trying to slow down Prince's release and then Use Your Illusion, Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2 debuted on the Billboard chart under the SoundScan era, number one and number two. So it was showing that people could handle it, but they kept saying that people couldn't handle it. And here it was, Prince being stifled, and he's looking at it as, oh, you know, Axl Rose, what's the difference between Axl Rose and myself, you know? Race in the space, the mar I'm our human. Catch you, catch me, we both bleed the same color red. But obviously to executives, Guns N' Roses was, was there willing to put out a double release. And with Prince, him wanting to release multi-releases, it wasn't going to be done. And that just frustrated him. And you can understand that, you know? Yeah, but you're because talking about the volume, though. It was a whole volume thing anyways. I mean, th that was it, though, is that... 
is that Guns N' Roses had, I mean, I don't, I can't remember. There was like a, a, a three or four year hiatus between before they did that. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. You, you have a little bit more of a scenario where, where Guns N' Roses is actually playing catch up at this point. You know, yeah. where Prince, it was, that was never an issue. I mean, Prince could give them two, three albums a year if they wanted it, but he, he had to try to figure out creative ways to kind of get it out there. And I think, but I mean, you can definitely understand the frustration and how he, definitely how it was perceived for sure. Absolutely. And just these albums like are overlooked. Again, he didn't have the machine behind him, but come like, look, there's some people that swear by solo. It isn't my jam, but there's some really great cuts on come. Like, if we lived in a world that didn't have the song Space and that Universal Love remix, I don't know what we'd do because sometimes that song and those versions and the acoustic version, it just speaks to me. It speaks to my soul. Yeah. And a lot of people say that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and then come speaks to me in different ways, of course, to different versions and other things that could be done with it. Hello. <laughs> um, and let it go, man. Just there's some things. Yeah, let it, it go just, was my all-time favorite. When we asked... When we asked what would the because I think it was just like a few days ago um, where it was an re- anniversary of that release. We asked what's your favorite song off that. A majority, like a huge majority, said "Dark," but then in second place was "Let It Go," and that for me that was one of my all-time favorite songs off of "Come Easily." That was it's just a great yeah. time, yeah. But and go ahead. No, I like. Then you have the gold. You have gold, and we're gonna get into that. But it's just. There was just, he didn't have the machine behind him anymore. And of course, he was making it himself more difficult. There would be people, because I worked at record stores during that time, and there were people that worked for Warner Brothers, and they were high up executives. It wasn't the people that were bringing in materials for promotion. They thought he was crazy. They had such a difficult time working with him. And sometimes they would tell me about um, going to meetings that he would call. And he'd come in there with sunglasses and his cane, and he wouldn't talk. It's like they would say that this stuff, and he wanted this this release to happen. It wasn't going to happen. And he'd, it'd be an hour meeting, and he would just walk right out without saying anything. And they were so beyond frustrated with him. And he was really, I think, hoping with these moves that they were just going to release him from the contract. I mean, look what happened with Motley Crue. They had a huge deal. And yes, Motley Crue is in Prince. But they had a huge deal that they signed. The album bombed, and Warner Brothers offered them the contract back with the masters so they wouldn't have to pay them. You know, I think there was a little bit of that going on in Prince's head that I wish that they would just give me everything back. But with Purple Rain alone, they're not going to do it. Oh, yeah, no way. Yeah, the amount of money is just insane that they, yeah, you just can't can't do it. But there was only, the promotional singles that were released off of this album, talking about Gold Experience, were Dolphin, P-Control, and Endorphin Machine, um, which were all released prior to the album. And of course, well, you have The Most Beautiful Girl in the World, too, but that was released over a year and a half before the album was actually... Well, first off, it wasn't connected to the album at that point yet. It was just a song that was kind of floating out there in the ether. Um, But many fans were already familiar with a lot of the material before the album's released, primarily because of that ultimate live tour. And then, of course, the distribution of all those bootlegs after, you know, him telling people to come out and do those tape recordings and whatnot. And, um, I mean, overall, the album was pretty successful. I mean, 1995, Rolling Stone gave it four out of five stars, and Vibe called it his best album since Sign of the Times. It reached number six on the Billboard 200 chart and number two on the Billboard Top R&B Albums chart. 
and it was certified gold by the RIAA on December 7th of 1995. So I think, you know, overall, with as frustrated as he was with the album, it still did relatively well, regardless of his efforts to kind of, you know, kind of fight Warner Brothers on that for whatever reason that may be. So... It was it sold 96,000 copies its first week, and I hate you getting played on the radio stations out here. And the thing is, is that he had a record going on that possibly Drake or Rihanna is going to break. Oh, my God, it makes me sad. But see, this is, I know more than just Prince, and a lot of people don't realize that. But, you know, from 1983 till 1994, he had a top 10 hit every year, and no other artist did have that. Not Elvis, not Aretha, not James. Prince is the only one that had it, and I hate you stalled at number 11. If he would have just serviced the video that he created and had ready and gave it to BET and MTV, it would have gotten enough plays to where he would have had his 11th year in a row with a top 10 single, and it didn't happen because last minute, whatever for whatever reason, if Warner Brothers did something that upset him again, that I hate you video uh, that was professionally shot and everything that we do see out there now, but it wasn't serviced. So he didn't even get that top 10 hit. And then here it is, the promotion of the album. I mean, you had P-Control for VH1 Honors, and you did have a Gold Experience video that only VH1 touched. Um, it was just quite frustrating because the album, as great as it is, it deserved a better fate. And then it was nominated for a Grammy, um, but it was against TLC and other stuff. And all the other albums, I think it was even D'Angelo's Brown, Brown Sugar and whatnot, um, TLC outsold every other album combined together. So we knew that TLC was going to win that one. But the Gold Experience just deserved more and to be, and to be put in a... You know, the R&B category deserved a better fate as well, but it's up to Warner Brothers to um, promote that and put it in for the Grammys that it feels it deserves, you know. Yeah, and wasn't that the album that TLC did a Prince cover on that album anyways? Wasn't that your girlfriend? Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, so, yeah. So technically, <laughs> technically, he still kind of got a little bit of a Grammy out of it anyway, so there you go. Yeah, it's not at Paisley, <laughs> is it? <laughs> no, it's not. So let's talk about the individual tracks, and then we'll we'll play these tracks also. So uh, all you guys can, you know, we're, we're we're chattering here. For those of you just joining us, I am joined by the legendary Doctor Funkenberry. Hey, there he is. He's right here, and we're chatting about and we're chatting about the Gold Experience album on this album chat. And uh, as we always do, we're going to be going into. The individual tracks, and then of course playing the tracks, which we, which is part of the fun of this, because it's not just it's one thing to actually do all the chatter about it, but it's also good to kind of just stop for a second and just sit back and listen to all the music, and uh, so we will be doing that, which I guess takes us to track number one, which is Peak Control, and um, um, the opening track is definitely one that was done a little bit out of shock value. I mean, yes, we. We'll talk about this. PK P control, aka Pussy Control, uh, on the promo releases. <clears throat> it it also saw life in a few different versions and releases, showing that he had some strong feelings slash high hopes, I guess, about the potential of this song. And it, it was a lot of shock value, even though Prince even says in the song, you know, please don't be a victim of the thirty second bite. Listens to the words carefully. They are meant to uplift and enlighten all the members of the female persuasion so that no woman ever becomes a slave. But, I mean, mm -hmm. the, the reality of it is is that even with the underlying positive message, just 
it's still a very jarring word and an odd choice for an album album opener. I mean, pretty much right out of the gate, you're like, okay, you know, it, it's it's like immediately, it's like, oh, what's in this? What's behind this door? And you open it up, and then you get knee in the crotch. It's like right out of the gate, you know. So no matter how positive he tries to spin the message, I mean, just hearing the word and hearing it delivered. I mean, you always kind of expect this type of stuff from Prince anyways during this era, obviously. But because he's in the MPG area where he was getting a lot more raw and using a lot more profanity, more so than he ever did before. So, you know, there was some kind of prep that you had going into this album, but you you kind of had to actually sit back and give it a chance and listen to the content to really understand the true content of what he was trying to say. And um, the first... The first version of this i guess um well in july 1995 there were cl- there was like clips of like three remixes of this track one was on the uh, versace experience prelude to gold the promo cassette that was given to the attendees at versace uh during paris fashion week and then they had the other one that was uh given to attendees of the vh1 fashion and music awards uh which you, which you mentioned that was in december 1995 and then they also, even years later, 1998, they had a club mix that's now simply just called P-Control um, that was also yeah. included as a, on the eighth track of Crystal Ball. But there were, yeah. but there was a bunch of other ones, too. There was also the remix that happened, uh, the, the French one, the, the Chateaunet Controle, or whatever, well, however you pronounce it, I guess, Chateaunet Control. Uh, literally translated, if you translate that, though, that's, if you do French, it's, it translates as Little Kitten Control as well. That translates out to so, so there's that so little kitten control the french version uh michael van huffel who was a creative director and animated animator for prince for many years he said there were so many different remixes of p control i remember i made a logo that looked like a little cartoon kitty cat head and they had we had t-shirts and buttons made and one of the remixes had Beavis and Butthead samples on it. The main sample had one of the characters yelling vagina over and over and over again. And he yeah. said there was a video too, which was mostly a bunch of porn clips that were cut together and sort of that old style video minor effect throughout or whatever. And some remixes of the track were planned for inclusion on, on what was going to be uh, the Hate Experience EP, which I don't think I've ever seen a physical copy of. Um but again, it's just one of those weird scenarios. And I think the, the, the promo of it, the, of P Control, on, had, had P Control on one side and 319 on the other. And yeah. obviously the single just had the two tracks on it. I mean, I, I, I still remember where I was, exactly where I was first hearing this song. It was just, in, I was just shocked. And of course, you know, the first few times that you listen to it, you're, you know, you're, you're thinking totally something else obviously the woman's got power and that power that she has is through her vagina that's kind of the immediate percep- uh, that that's a perception that you get right out of the gate if you're just not really paying attention to what's being said and yeah. there, there's a lot there's obviously much much deeper uh deeper definition of that song and I, I remember it took me a while to get to that deeper definition just because you're just a lot of people are, are chorus listeners anyways that's the way a lot of people are with music nowadays they hear a song and you know you get the chorus and whatever and you're like singing it yeah whatever and, and you're like enjoying it but you're not you don't spend time to sit down with the lyrics kind of like the, the rod the rod stewart 
the scenario, uh, Do You Think I'm Sexy? You know, a lot of people don't realize that that song is not about people asking whether or not you think he's sexy. If you actually sit down and pay attention to the lyrics, that's not what the song's about right. at all. But you, you get that it's a chorus listener mentality. So do you, do you right. remember where you were the first time you heard this song and what? <laughs> uh, I'll be honest. I, the first time I heard this song, I went to Tower Records on Sunset and I got the I got the cassette and the CD. I only had a cassette player in my car. I had a Toyota Tercel living in Southern California that didn't have air conditioning. Genius, by the way. <laughs> um, but my back seat was just this huge ass speaker because I love to bass stuff out, especially print stuff. And let me tell you, when I played, I just I left there to drive on Sunset and just hearing and then you're you're hearing the beginning of it everything the keyboard riffs and it's just like good morning ladies and gentlemen boys and motherfucking girls and i was just like oh my god and i just uh, and let me tell you i like i've been waiting so long to hear this album and i was just like uh, do I, I gotta hear that track again uh, I've heard Endorphin Machine I'm just like oh I had to play it again I was just so enthralled I've been waiting for this album for so long and now I have it and then the first track has me and I'm like what an opening track you know and it kicks it kicks major booty and I don't know about the video version you 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 saw or heard about. Uh, trust MBH, of course. Mad love to him. Um, but I know there's one version that had like the pussy control dancer. At least that was her name uh, from Glam Slam, and she was in it. Like, and they pulled like it had him in the cars. I want the video released for different reasons. I, if it, it's got the porno stuff, whatever. But I just want that released because. There's just so much stuff out there we don't have, and Pussy Control is just that jam. Like I said, the first time I heard it, I, w I could not wait to hear the Glow Experience all the way through, but I had to stop it, and that's what happened with me when I watched Days of Wild for the first time, the beautiful experience. I had to go back and listen to it again before going to the other stuff, and Pussy Control, man, and I, lo I love the VH1 honor, the VH1 uh, fashion show. Um, what they did on there and the choreography wasn't over the top but it just it told a story the jump rope everything else going on I just that song is, is hot it's fire and what a way to kick off that album man yeah it definitely is it, it's I mean it was just such a strong but it was just so it was also just so in your face as I was saying but the, you know except on all the versions that are out there it's only prints on all vocals and instruments except for except for the house mix, um, which is, it actually has, I guess that re-recording actually has portions of Get Wild and Mad in it as well. But on that house mix version, it's Prince, Michael B on drums, Sonny T on bass guitar, uh, Morse Hayes on keyboards, and Tommy Barbarella on also on keyboards as well. And, um, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that, well... You know, it is a, a a song about women empowerment, and um, I think it's it's just one of those songs. That's I still remember I was in New Orleans. What was I in New Orleans for? I can't remember. There was a reason why I was in New Orleans. I think it was for it was something music related. I I, I don't even remember because I've been in New Orleans a few times. But um, it, there, I remember going to Bourbon Street my very very first time. I had never. I, this was the first time I had ever walked down Bourbon Street, um, and. 
I, as I was walking on Bourbon Street, there was this very flamboyant six foot three black guy with, uh, I mean, he had ruffle feathers and a bunch of things, and he had this boom box, like this old school boom box, this pretty sizable boom box, sitting in the middle of Bourbon Street because they don't let cars go up and down Bourbon Street. And they had, and he was playing Pussy Control, and it was blaring down Bourbon Street, and he's just doing these, like, over-the-top, like, you know, he's voguing and doing all this stuff (laughs) right out in the middle of Bourbon Street, and I was just, I was, I had to stop, and I was like... I had my phone in my pocket, I was like, I could video this, but for some reason I'm just intrigued by this this whole thing. Just. To be honest, because what you're describing was when people were starting to figure out it was Dr. Fungaberry at first, they thought it was someone that was black and gay. There was someone uh, no longer friends with. He, he stopped being my friend because he suggested that I start going to events and kind of dressing close to what you, what you said this guy was wearing and then to have different colored hair each time. And because I wouldn't take his idea seriously and I just wanted to be me and wear a ball cap and other stuff, he was criticizing me online, talking stuff about me on my website. And this is a person that I let into my house and all this other stuff. And just amazing to me, like the, fr- the friends I've had al- allowed in. And yeah, I, this person doesn't talk to me anymore. And you know, I'll, you'll get those Facebook memories and then there's stuff that comes up. And it's just really crazy. But that, that's how they expected me to dress. And could you imagine me? You've met me. Uh, <laughs> nah, I would get my ass kicked. Well, no, let, well, let me just say, if I, if I saw you in New Orleans on Bourbon Street with a boombox and you were dressed that way and dancing to the song, I probably would have recorded you. Just so you now, know. just so you know, like, I, that's, how, that's, that's how people would hear Prince music in my neighborhood oh, yeah. from 91 on was on a boombox. I would get off the bus and you'd be hearing the scream of get off playing for all y'all suckers in my neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the first time this song was ever played was July 25th, 1994, at the Glam Slam in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And he actually played the instrumental version, I guess, of it over the thing. And it was the vocals were sung over the studio recording. Uh, The first time it was ever played live was November 11th, 1994, at Paisley Park Studios in Chanhassen. And the last time was at the Yokohama Arena in Yokohama, Japan, on the on, in 1996, January 20th, and of course, once Prince had converted at that point, shortly, not too too long after that, uh, that was pretty much the last time that song was ever played. So, I guess, without further ado, we should play P-Control. So, we're going to do that. You ready? Let's do it. Here it is, Pussy Curl. <laughs> Let's try it again. Here it is, Pussy Control, right here on Funked Up. All right. <clears throat> As I said, we're going to do this without the music. Uh, hold on a second. I'll give it like 10 seconds of silence so I can tell where this point is. Hold on. No problem. Yeah, see, a lot of time I won't be able to identify where those moments are unless I actually... Um, uh, yeah. I mean, so, all right. So, so that's how, that's how this is going. This is, that's how this, the process is. So... That's I, I as I said you're gonna get a whole, you're gonna get a hang of it it's not that big of a deal <laughs> you're gonna um, get it <laughs> all right so then we're gonna be coming out of the song all right here we go 
And that was Pussy Control, track number one on the Gold Experience. For those of you just joining us, we also have special guest <clears throat> Dr. Funkenberry in the house. How you doing, man? You doing all right? I'm doing great. In the apartment. Woo-hoo! <laughs> so far, so good. Um, <laughs> so, which takes us to track number two, which is the first introduction that we have to the uh, NPG operator. So, well, here's the thing, too. So this particular album had a few, uh, several little segues in it that have the end, you know, the little segues and MPG operators. We did that, but they had that with the symbol album too. Um, so what we're going to, we'll talk a little bit about the MPG operator clips, but then at the same time, uh, I don't want to just stop and then play 10 seconds and then come back and, and do this again. So we'll talk about this one and then we'll talk about the song after that, which is endorphin machine. And then we'll just play yeah. the two together. So, Let's talk about the NPG operator clips themselves. Now, obviously, for those of us who had the interactive game, the interactive CD-ROM, we had kind of heard a little bit of these clips here and there, and also they kind of embedded it in a lot of different things, like the 1-800-NEW-FUNK. If you actually called the phone number, there were some other things that you could hear and stuff. So they actually did a lot of little... Um, a lot of little clips, but the, the woman who did it was a, a lady by the name of Rain Ivana, who was the yeah. re, who was the receptionist at the Hollywood Record Plant recording studio. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, many hardcore fans were already acclimated to all the computer bleeps and bloops thanks to that thanks to that video game. But um, mm-hmm. you know, he was already dabbling in the computer world and trying to wrap his head around different ways that he can distribute his music because this was all part of that frustration process. It was like, all right, right. fine, Warner Brothers is not going to do this. I need to try to figure out some other different alternative ways that I can actually get this music out here. And, and this may be you know, one of the things I can do. I can also put little clips on here and whatnot, blah, 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 blah. Obviously we're only, you know, we're less than a decade away from, you know, the MPG, MPG music club. We're just not too far away from that, but it, it still took a long time for him to actually get to that point. Um, right. and, but the point of the segues was obviously to reenact the interaction between the user, well, you, and a, and a computer to interact with different experiences. And, it, of course, you know, all the pieces were done with keyboard clacks and clicks and whatever. Um, and all the sound effects, like the opening vault doors and whatnot, are all on one sound library called Sound Ideas. And actually, you know, I looked it up. You can actually still get this library. It's now called the series 1000 sound effects library and all the tracks that are on here, uh, include going all the way back to, uh, stuff from 1999. I mean, the baby cooing from, um, from delirious, the, ah, at the end, uh, the street noises from lady cab driver, all the rain and the, the windshield wipers and stuff that you're hearing the audience fighting sound in pop life when the song stops in the middle and does all stuff. Uh, you know, the, uh, the horn melody intro and stuff from something funky. This house comes all that stuff is on this one series. 1000 sound effects library, kind of like the drum machine thing that patterns that he used were all come from that same drum machine that, and I think that's kind of interesting that he just used so many out of the box sound effects. Uh, it's just weird. It's so frustrating because oh, my ear hears that stuff. And then, the NFL on Fox, like the sound that it makes, like like the door closing before it goes, hello, welcome to the dawn. The part, they were using that, like when they'd show a graphic on uh, the NFL on Fox before you'd see Jimmy Johnson, that damn <laughs> big boy hair of his. 
And then another thing is they started using that sound for the elevators closing on Melrose Place. And it's so frustrating me because I want to hear, hello, what was on? And then it's Amanda coming out with Michael Mancini on the elevator or whatever. But it would be so frustrating. But Rain Nirvana, Mad Pop Tour, and of course, like we see that with the most people go on the world video and the beautiful experience where, you know, here it is, known again accessing stuff and like if your endorphin machine has come on it please press this and it'll be 1999 will be billed to your endorphin machine or whatnot but rain of honor that voice is so amazing but those sound effects would be so frustrating to me because then like i said nfl and fox tv and then melrose place and yes i watch melrose place go ahead take away one of my funk cards i got enough <laughs> well no it's it's quite all right it's it's fine but, th- but this particular one <clears throat> yeah, I, I kind of hear a lot of those clips. Matter of fact, I always hear random clips. I never knew where they came from. I, I'm trying to remember. The other day, I was listening to Sirius XM because I have satellite radio, and they had. I was listening on the Comedy Channel, and they had uh, that comedian, uh, comedian, who uh, is all over that one track, the one that screams. All this stuff. It was like all of her clips. Um, I can't remember. What, I think it was from this tour. It was from that tour or whatever. But there was like clips that they had that he had taken from her set, and I, I actually heard the 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 actual set that was being done by this comedian, and I had never heard her before. And it was strange because it was just all incorporated through and through the one particular song. And I'm trying to remember the the. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the song. It doesn't matter. I went down a rabbit hole. It's perfectly okay. But anyways, yeah, no, I get what you're saying. It's like he was he was used all these external pieces and whatnot to kind of bring in and and you hear those things out in the normal world. In it's it's just so it's so strange. It's just you you're right. You expect to hear you expect to hear that, and it's just so insane. But th- but this one is like welcome to the dawn playground for the new power generation so this is the first time you're hearing this woman and then it says there are over 500 experience to choose from here's a sample and then of course it goes into endorphin machine so let's talk about endorphin machine um so you you said when was the first time you had heard this song because you said when you, once you had the album you had already heard that or whatever when's the first time you heard endorphin, endorphin machine? machine i actually heard from a show that is an after an after show where he did Blue Light and he also did Endorphin Machine, so my first time hearing it was through a show that took par- took place in Paris, I believe. And I had the C D spent like eighty bucks on a two disc set of it. And then I loved it and then of course then the next time I heard it he did it at the VH1 Honors show where he did interactive endorphin machine oh my god did it kick butt and me working at a record store people were coming in the next day asking for the new prints of the two songs especially the second song that he did VH1 Honors the night before and I'm like it's not out and they're like what he performed it though I'm like yeah it's not out like, alright when's the release date I'm like there is no release date for it <laughs> fighting with his record label he's like alright because it actually was someone that uh, that I actually knew that came in and he was like tell you what whenever that album comes out just let me know because I want to buy it especially if that track is on there but yeah by the time he moved out of the area by the, by the time it came out and all that stuff but yeah, that VH1 honors and that scream and everything was just freaking perfect yeah. uh, I will say this when it comes to the studio version like look I love Christopher Walken. I love Will Ferrell. But 
the one song, the one thing that that song didn't need was more cowbell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they always seem to find, and it was always some random people that were, you know, that he would bring in to do those types of things. I mean, you know, some of the more amateur sounding things were never normally Prince. You know, Prince would always kind of have some type of, you know. Jesus, there were times I wanted to put, like, take his hand and go, please don't add anything to it. Just like with the breakdown, and that pew pew, like having a, like, a fight in the middle of Star Wars with the breakdown playing. There's just sometimes I just wanted him to leave certain things alone, and that, that's what would be frustrating with Warners and other people, not allowing him to put out the music as soon as he wanted to, because then he would start tinkering with it a little bit. I know there's some of you guys that, like, whatever, Doc doesn't know what he's talking about. He ain't that funky. Like, I love the cowbell, but... It was rocking without it, you know. Yeah, it's 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 just a fan. It's a really great song. It's definitely you know of all my you know whenever I would try to put together like a little bit of a compilation of Prince songs that you know may appeal to you know some of my more manly man friends or whatever because you know those types of people weren't. Yeah, it's like you know there's some people you know what's going to click with them and what's you know so. If I know somebody's coming for more for a more rock leaning world, you know, I may, you know, introduce them to some of the live stuff like Sign of the Times from Japan or, uh, you know, do some clips like that or Endorphin Machine or some stuff from Chaos and Disorder and things just to kind of, you know, give them a little bit of an idea that, you know, Prince was a man of many different styles. And you know what? I have to take that back. The first time I heard it was not on that CD. The first time I heard it, the Glam Slam dancers came to our senior hall and they performed it on the show of 1993 to promote Ulysses. So it actually was on right. our senior show performed, so I take that back. Yes, that is correct. Um, but it was amazing. And the lyrics, dude, and the whole thing that he had for the visual concept of the Over Machine with those dancers, plus one for the money, plus two for the dream. Get ready for something that you've never seen. Like... This just shows, like, here it is. You had P control, and then you have Endorphin Machine following it up after the MPG operator. It's strong. This album is strong. Yeah. You know, you had, it's like with Sign of the Times and Playing the Sunshine. You had two tracks back-to-back open up an album that just were bankers, you know? Yep. So, but it was only, as far as, like, being released as a single, you're, you're right, because they did do that... A presentation for yeah for the Ulysses show that was happening in Glam Slam, which you know obviously was not was not doing that great. But it, needless to say, it, it you're right, it still happened there. Um, it, it was available as a promo single in Japan, but not anywhere in the U.S. Um, and also in Japan, they released "I Hate You" as a single, and "Endorphin Machine" was on the back side of that, so it was on the flip side of that one. And what's interesting. Um, is that it was recorded the same day as Dolphin, Dark, and Come, all at Paisley Park in 1993, which I was just pretty interesting. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, to think that that, that those four songs were recorded in the same day. I mean, just try, I mean, Endorphin Machine, Dolphin, Dark, and Come, all of those written on the same day. Now, what what I find more, more interesting about this more than anything else is the vast differences between all of those all of those songs and how drastically different than they are from each other. Dolphin right. and Endorphin Machine has a little bit of similarities to it, but you know, it's just it's you know. But anyways, there was a live version that was recorded in 1994 that was supposed to be 
uh, a live album that never happened. And a lot of people like myself have heard that highly edited version of uh, of that live album, but you know, the live version of that song too. Uh, but that version that we all got used to hearing is actually heavily edited down from a much longer version of Endorphin Machine that was kind of uh, floating out there in very, very limited uh, bootlegging rotation, should we say. Um, but when the album was released, you know, people like myself who had been accustomed to hearing that live version, though, uh, you know, a lot of people were, were kind of ticked about it because they just kind of felt like a lot of the overdubs and some of the, you know, squashing of some of the energy that in the rawness of it was really kind of taken away. And I, right. it, was, it was also, you know, a lot of people say, well, uh, the same thing happened with Xana Lee and Fury also. And those two songs experience the same exact thing. It's like, you know, when you're doing it in a certain way and it's live and it's raw and it's got that raw energy and then you put it through the, you know, all the editing and production unnecessarily that just really squashes the energy of it. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, it is what it is. And speaking of that interactive video game again, if you finished the game, you were rewarded with the video of the studio version of Endorphin Machine. Did you ever make it to the end of that game? Yes, I did. I will say that the, the Diamond of Pearls thing where you have to, oh, the combination thing, it was three in the morning. It took me a little bit of time to uh, get through, and I, I would have to walk away from the computer, go back. But other people later on shared their experiences that they had the same problem. Now, keep in mind, I bought the video game when it came out, the day it came out, and I got like a week later, my the manager of the record store, Julie Shy, um, who actually knows uh, David Z, um, she gave me like some interactive stickers that came with it as a promotional too, which I thought was cool. But back to the thing at hand, I didn't play the video game until I finally got my first computer, a used computer in 1998, that to save up to get. But I could not wait to play that game, and I had so much fun except for, like I said, a little combination thing to get it to play the Diamonds and Pearls correctly, and then it opens up. Um, but yes, I enjoyed that version of the video on my little computer screen, my little <laughs> those 95 that I had in 1998. But yeah, yeah I still I still remember <laughs> playing it. I had to I had to upgrade my I had to upgrade my computer to actually get it to to play correctly because it was like really. It was like really painfully slow, like stutter stop. It's like you would click to go to the left, and the screen would go click, 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 like really, really, really slow. And it was like, you know, it's funny all the 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 positive memories that we have about that video game. But if you really remember playing that video game, it was a pain in the ass. It was just, it took up so much memory, and it was so friggin' slow that it's like you you would click, and it's like. There would be like rows of graphics that would have to realign, you know, so, so right. you were face a certain way and you was like, oh, I just got to face just a little bit that way. And if you click just one extra time, it was like the whole thing would go click, 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 click. Oh, my God. Um, anyways, the Endorphin right. Machine was also given to the name of the womb part of the uh, the stage part of the set during the Ultimate Live Experience Tour that was happened in 1995. And as far as who plays on this song, it is Prince on all vocals and instruments, uh, Michael B. on drums, Sonny T. on bass guitar, Tommy Barbarella on keyboards, and also Mr. Hayes on keyboards. First time this song was ever played was July 11th, 1993 at the Paisley Park Studios in Chanhassen, and the last time would be quite a while later, surprisingly enough, uh, May 30th, 2014. 
So just to, which is yeah, which is surprising. It was a uh, Botanique in Brussels, Belgium. Uh, so yeah, that's that's kind of interesting that uh, that song lived that long. It wasn't you know it wasn't really necessarily one of his more you know popular songs, but when he was doing the Third Eye Girl stuff, he broke out all of his raw and more rocky material and yeah. really killed it. Well, let's I take a it. yeah, it's awesome, man. Let's take a listen. It's Endorphin Machine right here on Funked Up. All right. And of course, when we do the editor versions, all the music will be there, obviously. Um, all right. And that was Endorphin Machine. Welcome to the Gold Experience album chat with yours truly, Mr. Christopher from Funkatopia and the one, the only Dr. Funkenberry. Thank God there's only one of those. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, it's always good there's only one of you because I don't know if I could tolerate another one. Um, you know? I know. <laughs> uh, anyways. <laughs> Which, <laughs> Which brings us to, I guess, the next track on the album, which is... Man, uh, a lot of stuff about this one. I really don't have a lot of stuff on paper about this one, but I know that you had some some uh, some chatter about shh, but you know, the, as far as what I have, we'll start with what I have, and then I'll move to you and kind of let you talk a little bit about about this album. Now, shh, it's, it's so weird to say that as a song title. Shh is a track that was written by Prince under the pseudonym Paisley Park for Tevin Campbell's second album, I'm Ready. It mm-hmm. appears as the twelfth track on that album, and it was recorded in mid to late June 1992 at Olympic Studios in London, England. Uh, actually, they had just been taking a break from. Uh, they were actually they were just in between a couple of shows. They were in London doing the Diamonds and Pearls tour, and they were kind of on a little bit of a break. So instead of chilling and taking in the sights of London, they decided to head into a studio and um, <laughs> record this song. Uh, which he did quite often. Now, Prince also wrote a bunch of other songs on that album, including The Halls of Desire, uh, Uncle Sam, and Paris 1798430. And, you know, Tevin was a clean-cut kid at the time. Uh, He was in high school when Sh was written. So, you know... So all of a sudden, you know, if you're following this this kid on, on his journey, on his musical journey, and, uh, you know, he's he's kind of wooing some of the young, you know, younger teenage girls kind of the tweens and and such and then all of a sudden he's coming out doing a song going i'd rather do you after do you after school like some homework <laughs> you know yeah. it kind of caught a little folks off guard you kind of felt like oh you're just you're just you just kicked off those shoes and jumping right into the deep end now um I, yeah yeah it, yeah it's, so not not to matter tevin's version of the song hit number eight on the r&b charts and when prince eventually released his own version it only made it to number 62. So Tevin's version, like, way outperformed uh, Princess as far as charts are concerned. Whatever. I'm I'm just talking about as far as charts are concerned. We all know and love the Prince version. There's only one version. There's only one version of this song. Uh, But it's way more iconic to us Prince fans, obviously, for obvious reasons. And, you know, I mean, and of course, the song would become very, very active part of the set list for many, many years to come. Um, I mean, let, let me just put it this way. Look, Hall of the Desire, great. Paris 1798430. Uncle Sam and the lyrical content that is still so relevant today. That sh- version that Tevin does, like, it's like 
the edited version of something he's showing on HBO or Cinemax, like on a Saturday night or whatever. Then you got Prince's version, just stripping, sweaty, sexy. You can feel those candles just dripping all over you like a ball of wax on his version. And just, the, 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 it was oozing sexuality. It wasn't a door, it wasn't scandalous, but was going to be the thing that was going to get your girl so wet, so succulent, that you just couldn't wait to get her home and do after school like some homework. You know, candlelight, I don't think so, you know, but it's just Kevin's version, like I said. Cool. Prince's version, I don't care what, see, this is why charts don't matter anymore, because that Prince version is just erotic. I want to see that in a movie scene used. State, if you're listening, because you just listen to everything I do, love ya. Uh, let's get that in a freaking movie in a hot sex scene and just, I'm telling you, just thinking about it right now, that song um, makes me miss some things right now, for sure. But um, it's just erotic, it's grooving. If you're listening to it in your car, if you are lucky to have someone that you love that you're listening to it right now when he's about to play it, you can pause the podcast and get your freak on for a little bit because that song deserves it. And it's just erotic and raw, and it's Prince at his ultimate sexual best. And that guitar solo, sex is not all I think about. It's just all I think about you. There you go. Yeah, and and the other thing about this song, not to take away anything <laughs> that you just said, but the way that this song starts with the uh, banana, it's just such a it's such a loud and brash song, and then all of a sudden it just pulls back. It's like this explosion that happens right out front, and then and then everything that happens during the song is just like the dust settling from that explosion, and then it just kind of comes up again. It's yeah. just, it literally is. On yeah, sexual such an erotica a, that yeah. it just it's is, is just it's just amazing. Like yeah. It's it's a that great, song. great freaking song. On the Tevin Campbell version of this song, it's uh, obviously Tevin Campbell on vocals. Uh, Prince is actually does some vocals too. If you listen very, very closely, he's kind of layered in there. It's Michael B on drums, Sonny T on bass guitar, Tommy Barbarella on keyboards. And then uh, Eric Leeds on sax, Atlanta Bliss on trumpet, and Kathleen Johnson on background vocals. However, on the Prince version, kind of similar, uh, except it's Prince on vocals and instruments. Yay! Uh, no offense, Tevin. Just, you know, we like our boy. Uh, Michael B. <laughs> Michael Bland on the drums, man. Yeah, Michael B. on drums, Sonny T. on bass guitar, uh, Tommy Barbarella on keyboards, and then Maite on background vocals. Uh, I think... Um, Cece Dunham, when she does that, the the version that she does with, uh, I think that was on the um, uh, the Montreux Jazz Festival that when Cece Dunham was on there. Oh my God, she's just as brutal, man. Oh uh, wow, what the? That doesn't make any sense. Anyways, uh, yeah, Versace Experience uh, version. It's it. There is a Versace Experience version. That clip that you hear on that is. Only Prince. Prince on vocals and instruments, and uh-huh. that's it. Nothing else. And Just you get Prince. those bonus lyrics. I like the way you look tonight. I like the way you smell tonight. I was wondering if I can I, can I. <laughs> of course, Prince does it a lot better than I do, everyone. But 
track down that version. It's amazing. And can I just say, thank you so much, Prince. Thank you so much, the artist or the symbol of what he was going at at the time, for taking that song back from Kevin Campbell because... There, there's a lot of people that are listening to the show right now that the kids that they have probably wouldn't have been born if it wasn't for that jam or having, having that song. That's all I can say about it is just pure erotic talent, sex, whatever you want to say, defines it all. And thank you so much for taking it back from Tevin. No disrespect to Tevin, but man, could you imagine a world that we lived in that the version of that Prince did didn't exist. Yeah, I know. It's, it's That's what I can say about that. <laughs> First time this song was ever played, February 13th, 1994, at Paisley Park in Chanhassen. Last time will be March 17th, 2013, at La Zona Rosa in Austin, Texas. So I guess without further ado, go ahead and uh, you know get your warm jammies on. We're going to take a listen to Shh right now, right here. On Funked Up. Enjoy. Jammies. I don't want to. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. Let's Just trying to have fun. Right, let's give it five seconds. And. All right. And that was which uh, we all know and love and enjoy, and especially the Prince version. You're listening to the Gold Experience album chat with Mr. Christopher and Dr. Funkenberry in the house. Yep, yep. Yep, in the condo. What's up? <laughs> What's up? Live from the penthouse. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, not including the segues, uh, or the segue at this point. This is the fifth track on the album that we're about to talk about, which is We March, written by Prince and Nona Gay. Um, so this was released as a promo track in the UK, not in the US. Um, and actually in 2001, it was released as part of the MPG Music Club edition number two download. Um, and there are a few versions of this song floating around, and apparently uh, he had actually made last-minute changes to the official right right before it was about to be released. Um, and I think it was um, there was like a bunch of versions that were different. I don't know that I could actually probably distinguish the versions. I think there may be some some lyrical differences, but I don't really know what the distinction is between a lot of the different versions that I've heard. Because people always say, oh, well, have you heard this version? And I listen to it and I go, I, I don't really hear too much different. And I guess you have to listen closely, like lyrically to it. And I think those are some of the adjustments that were made. I guess in right. uh, July 1995, in an interview with Uptown Magazine, Maite said that Prince had changed the music um, right before the final release. That's kind of where we got that information. But also, if you remember the website, uh, loveforoneanother.com, love the number four, oneanother.com, and during the question of the week uh, in 1999, uh, so like like four years after the song had already been out and about, um, there was a guy by the name of Arthur who asked, in creating the song We March, did you have the then upcoming Million Man March in mind? While at the march, I remember hearing several positive references to you and that song in that it conveyed the spirit of the march. And then Prince had confirmed uh, confirmed that during that questionnaire. He said, We March was indeed played at the Million Man March over the, over the loudspeakers, but in fact was written before I had heard about the event. <laughs> 
so I was not really aware that it was it had anything to do with that. Well, I guess it really didn't because he just said it, it didn't, but it still lives in kind of the same spirit uh, of that. And I guess that had a lot to do with his involvement with Nona Gay because she was very much, uh, very much an activist uh, in a, and still is to this day. Um, and this is a huge song for Prince because, I mean, he what he felt like he needed to really kind of use his position as an artist with a large voice. And, and the song We March was a great vehicle for his, you know, ongoing message regarding the country's never-ending issue with its, I guess, inability to embrace all races and cultures. Let's just put it that way. I mean, I mean, even though all this country, this entire country is just a melting pot from a bunch of different countries. Anyway, I mean, when you, even when you think of, I mean, I, I, it's kind of, even when you just say white people, I mean, people have to understand white people are just not white people. I mean, it's 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 such a broad statement because white people are Scottish, Polish, German, Spanish, Mexican, Swiss, Russian, French, English. I mean, and African. I mean, there's. I mean, it's so. I think the whole the whole point of any the, the fact that people are have racism in their in the way that they think and the way that they talk is just ridiculous to me. And I mean, but yeah, even though the, the United States is so ridiculous in that regard, especially when it comes to, again, white people annoying to me, whenever I hear it, white people regarding black people and, 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 and any other Brown people in general, uh, I think, you know, the fact that we have this issue is really, really, um, I don't know that we're ever going to get out of this mix because I just think that it just kind of gets taught from generation to generation to generation to unnecessarily and just idiotically from generation to generation to generation. When, I mean, if you really take a step back, there's nobody that is exactly the same. You can get a room full of, of white people that all claim, oh, we need to get all these black folk out of here and blah, 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 blah. But the reality of it is, is that every single one of those people in there, you'd be probably really lucky to be able to put 10 of them that are all from the same country. Because <laughs> yeah. they're, they're all different. Yeah. It's just, it makes no sense. Racism doesn't make any sense to me. And I'm glad, I'm glad that a song like this actually exists on, on this album in the middle of everything that was kind of going on, especially during that time. Um, it's the nineties were just a, a, a hotbed. I mean, especially in LA too, I can only imagine. So I, I'm, I'm glad to see this song because the ability to stand up for your rights and speak out and speak your von, mind nonviolently in order to communicate your message is what makes this country so great. And it also what makes songs like we march so powerful and then it resonates with so many people. Sorry, right. I just rambled there. But. Right. Much love to James White, who shared a story with me that I can't remember about the song. But I just need to say a few things. Like, I am not a color. I'm human. I am not going to spend my time being a color. I'm human. And it's unfortunate that songs like We March and Uncle Sam uh, still have so much relevance today. Um, it frustrates me. So much. Cause growing up, look, dude, I knew right from wrong, and you'd have stuff mentioned in comic books that use the N word because they were able to do that back then. And it just frustrates me because we live in a society where I can't watch the news anymore. I can't even watch Colbert or uh, The Daily Show. I just don't do it because 
the world outside is looking at us and we are what they say we are because the country is so divided right now. I mean, a football player came and take a freaking knee that brought someone to the Super Bowl and now he's not even in the league. And then you have Jay-Z making a deal with them, but is Colin still playing in the NFL right now? Is he back in there? No. I mean, we we need to march and not just one quote-unquote color. We need to march together for change, and I don't think that's going to be happening in 2020. I hope it happens. Um, but it's just, it's just so frustrating to me. Like, the... The passion that I have for, sh- I have passion for this in a different way, a frustration and anger that we're not learning from our mistakes as a society to where we do need to march again, where we do need these things. And it's just, it's hard, it's hurtful, it's, it makes me angry, it makes me sad that, you know, it's I one of the other record stores I worked at. I'm like, can you help out that gentleman in the suit? And the girl was like, which one? Uh, Melissa, I'm not going to say her last name. Um, and she had no idea because there were two people. And I go, the one the, the, with the purple tie. And she was just like, oh, my God, you couldn't just say the black guy? And I'm like, see, I don't see color. And I never saw that. I saw a person that was very well-dressed in a nice suit. And this is it about colors. Like, I don't understand that stuff. It doesn't resonate with me, and it and it upsets me. And it's just unfortunate that we need we need songs like We March, that, they're, that they are still relevant and that he had to create it. I'm glad it's out there, but because it has to be out there because of the ignorance of others and not understanding that we all are one, that we have to stop. We're not that differently. If we bleed the same color, we are the exact fucking same. Get it through your damn head. And I'm just tired of it. Let, let our borders, whatever, about stuff. If people want to come here for a better life, let them come here. Like if a person has a better score and they're a certain color, choose that damn person over it. Like I I do stuff every day and I don't give a damn who whose credit is better. If they're, whoever's credit is better is who I'm getting and who I'm choosing. I don't care about other things. And it just, sorry to go on this whole tangent, but this, this song is an important part of what makes the gold experience special. And some people need to not afford it and need to listen to it and need to learn some things in their life. And that's all I want to say. I'm sorry I went off that tangent, but sometimes what goes on in this world, I just, I just can't understand. And sometimes it makes me think that I'm not of this world because I don't get it and I get hurt by things like that and it just really really bothers me you need to cut me off because I'm going to go on for another 20 minutes let's just stop right here (laughs) no I mean it's fine because I think that's the whole point of this song is to is to generate people's thought processes and and kind of you know share the same frustrations i mean it's it's such an aggravating thing to kind of watch and there's always going to be cultural differences the one positive thing that i can definitely say is that you know we're lucky to be in the united states yeah i mean some people is not it's you know look at upon it negatively for whatever reason as far as you know uh you know relationships are concerned but when you look 
at how some countries are handling their their race problems it's very very violent have you seen you know clips from you know over in israel and all the things that are going on with you know between the races there and in different culture clashes and things like that i mean you know luckily we have uh, we live in a country where we can kind of you know speak our minds and and hopefully you know try to come to some type of solution and and i think that luckily you know, can we, can we I, 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 I think we can't um well uh, yeah that, that 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 that's all that's all here and there i i personally don't think that you know the whole knee thing is is really that that big of a deal if a person doesn't want to take a knee they'll, they'll need to take a knee it's not really it's not offensive it's just you're saying you're not happy about a situation. Just you know, it's just like anything else. I just I don't think I don't think it's warranted to take a man's job and his livelihood because he won't get on a knee and say, "Oh yeah, I'm so happy that I'm being screwed over." So <laughs> we we haven't learned lessons that were taught from us from centuries ago from right and wrong. We haven't learned something from civil right marches back in the day. And that bothers me. That's all. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be from this country as well. It doesn't define me, um, but I just want us to be defined that we're all human and we need to freaking stick together. That's all. I know it's going to take a long time, but I, I think it will. I think it will. As the older generations that really have kind of had themselves deeply rooted in it, black and white, um, it's it will slowly go. It, it, eventually we'll just keep on evolving and keep on evolving but it you know hopefully it will hopefully our kids will be able to see it uh, to see some type of semblance of of peace and harmony and that's that's really kind of what we gotta that's what we gotta hope for and that's the reason why songs like we march exist and as far as the people that play on this song we got uh there was a studio version and a live version uh, very similar uh, princes on uh, vocals and instruments, except for Nona Gay on co-lead vocals, Sonny T on co-lead vocals, Kirk Johnson on the drum programming, and Ricky Peterson, also known as Ricky P on additional keyboards. Ricky is Paul's brother, uh, a.k.a. St. Paul Peterson from The Family. Uh, he still actively plays out, sitting in with Eric Leeds and, and Paul uh, on the LP project. And I lucked out. I, I lucked out and got a chance to actually see them play at a show last time I was up in Minneapolis. Uh, last time we were hanging out, I was. I got an opportunity to see them up there. Playing up there was phenomenal. Um, the live version of this, however, has Prince on all vocals and instruments. And I'm sorry that I'm not calling him the symbol when I'm saying this. I'm just again, we're all Prince fam here. Michael B on drums, Sonny T on bass guitar and co-lead vocals, Mr. Hayes on keyboards, Tommy Barbarella on keyboards, and of course, Nona Gay on co-lead vocals, but she's sampled on that live version. First time this song was ever played, November 25th, 1994, at the Trinan Palast in Berlin, Germany, and the last time, January 9th, 1996. So this song only saw uh, a, a couple years of live uh, performances out of it and then he just kind of put it to rest which is kind of unusual for something that he was that passionate about but that was in uh, Nippon Budokan in Tokyo Japan so I guess I think we've said pretty much as much as we probably need to say we're probably going to need to edit that whole section I would imagine probably edit it down um, but that all being said here it is we march right here on Funked Up hey <laughs> Yeah, we'll, I'll, I'll probably edit that and maybe not sound so in, insanely ignorant, but that's okay. Um, 
it wasn't there wasn't anything ignorant that I, I was saying it at all. It's just a lot of truth, but it's uh, you know. Some, yeah. so, some people you can't say anything, so you're just supposed to just sit and go, "Yep, you're right." Uh, <laughs> all right, so here we're oh, gonna good. come out of this. Here we go. And that was we march again. Those of you who are have been along with us for the whole ride, sorry, I keep making this announcement, but a lot of people come in in the middle of all this, and you know we got people listening all over the world. Hundreds of people listen, thousands of people listen all over the world. And that's the problem is that some people come at different times. You're listening to the album chat for the album The Gold Experience with myself, Mr. Christopher, and Dr. Funkenberry is along for the ride. Let's ride. Still doing good? Still doing good? Absolutely. And looking forward to the song, CS. Yeah, okay. it's it's a good one. It's a good one because we have uh, well, first we have an MPG operator segue, and we'll, we'll so this one just kind of it's had a little keystroke, and then the operator comes in and says, um, uh, "Welcome to listen to the beautiful experience," and then says, "This is about courtship, sex, commitment, fetishes, loneliness, vindication, love, hey, blah 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 blah," and then it goes into the most beautiful girl in the world. Again, I am going to play the segues as promised, but we're going to talk about the most beautiful girl in the world first. And then we will uh, we'll play both the Segway and Most Beautiful Girl in the World. Uh, so, Most Beautiful Girl in the World was um, was a single that was released a year and a half before this album's release because it wasn't connected to this album at that time, but it did eventually find uh, find a home. But it is the earliest track ever to be known to carry the symbol name as the writer. So that was the first song that Prince had. Um, the first song that Prince didn't write down on the cassette cover that Prince had wrote it. <laughs> he, he drew the symbol or whatever he was doing at the time. Uh, I wonder if he actually, you know, would, you know, put the cassette in or maybe, you know, the, the reel to reel tape or whatever he was using to record at the time. And he just got to the point where it had the field where you had to write down who wrote the song. I wonder if he actually just like spent time and actually, you know, drew the symbol or, did he just say symbol, or I wonder? I wonder what uh, I wonder what he wrote there. I wonder what was going through his mind when that when that transition happens from okay, you know, kind of kind of like you get used to signing your name your whole entire life, and then you go, oh, I think I'm going to be somebody else. <laughs> oh, he was doing it before he made the name change. That's for sure. Uh, well. Uh, a group of European radio networks, specifically Los Forty Principales in Spain and Radio Veronica and Tros in the Netherlands and DSR3 in Switzerland, purchased a tape from Prince that had 10 minutes of remixes and they aired uh, a, uh, they aired that whole entire 10 minute tape on their on their radio stations. I guess they have different types of formats and stuff that they use uh, overseas and it, they were able to just say, oh, here's 10 minutes of music that we got from Prince. And it included this song. Uh, it also included Interactive, Days of Wild, Now, Poem, Acknowledge Me, 319, and Pheromone. So a little bit of uh, a little bit of a bunch of different albums there. Um <clears throat> And poem is actually for those of you who don't know, poem. We're not. That's actually the the orgasm song that's at the end of um, end of come. For those of you who don't remember, that's the one that uh, you know Prince is doing a poem while um, some people are having fun. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and in 1995, this is my favorite part of the story. Just 
ticks me off. A guy named Bruno Baganzi, his name should have been warning enough, has claimed that he wrote the song and, well, the, actually that Prince had plagiarized his song uh, that was called Taken Me to Paradise with another person named uh, Michelle Vicino. An Italian court ruled in 2003 that Prince indeed did plagiarize on their song. And uh, that song had actually appeared on a bunch of different compilation albums that were released overseas. And uh, I'm going to take a just just a, a quick minute. I'm not even going to give it any more time than a minute. I'm actually going to play a little bit of uh, the clip from the chorus of this because anything else outside of the chorus doesn't even sound anything remotely close to the most beautiful girl in the world. Actually... The entire song is a travesty because it sounds nothing like what Prince did. And I have no idea why they voted in favor of these knuckleheads. Uh, it sounds nothing like it. But I'm going to play it anyway so you can judge for yourself. So let's give this about uh, 10 seconds of silence here. And we're going to play we're, we're going to play a clip from this right here. Which I'll do and then we'll go back. All right. See, as I said, it sounds nothing like it. There are some similar chord changes, but it just doesn't make any sense to think that it's plagiarism. H have you heard that song before? Um, have you heard that song before? I did. I played it myself, and I was just like, man, Italian courts, man. Italian <laughs> Like, uh-uh. And, you know... For Gold Experience not to be re-released on vinyl right now because of that is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, dag nabbit. Well, you know, I think it's... Anyways, I know that there's seven notes and 12 major scales in music, okay? And there's millions of songs out there. At some point, there's going to be some similarities that happen between... I mean, I don't understand how there's not all types of plagiarism... Uh, uh, cases that are going on for reggae music or or for country or for country music or for uh, because so many of those songs have the exact sound similar dun 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 it's the same exact thing it's I don't understand why there's just not plagiarism cases left and right over different types of things like this it doesn't make any sense at all but right. I know that Prince appealed and they won that um, and the Prince did not win. The the Bruno Bruno and Michelle they won that appeal also, which that was in 2007. That was late as 2007, so it was still battling back and forth. And then there was a third and final sentence by the Court of Cassation in Rome that happened in 2015, and basically they said that they basically made Berganzi and Vicino the authors of the most beautiful girl in the world, which is ridiculous. Right, it is. And, and well, it, when that's, that's one of the reasons why you will not hear the most beautiful girl in the world ever played in Europe. They basically refuse to play it in Europe at all because, and that's, that's fantastic. You guys don't deserve it. You guys have an idiot court system. This song has it's nothing like it. It's insane. Pretty much. And what, what a beautiful, what a beautiful song. Like, yeah, I know absolutely, yeah. Fathers that tell me, like, when they think of their little girl, you know, they think of the most beautiful girl in the world by Prince. Uh, it's it's a beautiful song. Um, you know, debuted what at a the, one of the beauty pageant things. Like I was expecting the full version. It was like they played the beginning of it, then they played the end of it, and then Arsenio on February 14th of Valentine's it was an all-woman audience of that year, and they all got a signed copy of the single. 
was coming out the next day. Um, and that, you know, they had it with the symbol, they had it signed. And that was that. And just a beautiful, beautiful song showing the true romantic side of Prince, of a prince in love. And we've all been in love. It's a great feeling. Um, and just a beautiful song to just show the beauty of a woman, you know. And we've all had our uh, most beautiful girls in the world, hopefully. Uh, some that are fathers that are looking at their daughters. Some relationship ones, KLF. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a beautiful song and it means a lot to me and it always has. Like, I was dating a girl at the time and she didn't like Prince, so she wasn't getting the most beautiful girl in the world and I wasn't giving that song to anyone. Um, yeah, so it took a long time for me to give it to anyone and uh, just means a lot. It's a great song. I love it. It's for us true romantics, and uh, I don't want to say anything anything more about it. Yeah, it's it's a great. I mean, and there was multiple remixes of this song done. It was such a powerful song, and that was another thing too. Is that with all these judgments that were going on in regards to that song, especially with as many remixes that was done to it. I mean, you had. Uh, there was a saxophone version with Brian Gallagher. There was a, a instrumental version called "Beautiful Girl" that was on the back of NPG's uh, "Get Wild." Um, there's an Eric Leeds version, an Ophelia Winter version, and there was also um, a, a version that was done by the Japanese singer Kohuru Kohuramaki. And you know what's funny about her is that that version remains unreleased along with two other songs that she did that were also really really good which were um mind bells which is one of my one of my favorite weird bootlegs it's one of those it's one of those songs that's just um it's just so strange it but it's it's really cool and um and bliss also that was another one so i wonder if kohuru had any type of uh animosity about you know, everything I record with Prince is just sitting in the vault. <laughs> it's just well, not released. version, the most beautiful boy in the world. Yes, that's right. Maite also did the gender flip version. It was the most beautiful boy in the world. And there's also, she also did a Spanish version. Uh, yep. qui, yeah, the Quiero ser más bello de musto, uh, este mundo. And that was actually on, um, yeah, that one hasn't seen a release either. But, you know, what's funny is that everybody said you know, everybody says, well, the song's about Maite. The song's about Maite. The song's about Maite. However, Maite said in her memoir, um, she says, I know of three women besides me who believe it was written specifically for them. And she said, I hope every woman who hears it thinks it was written specifically for her because it was. And she backs it up by saying, take a look at the music videos. You won't see me in it. You'll see a collage of girls and women of every age, race, and body type. This is his love song for all of us. Yeah. Um, and there was, um, yeah, I, could, I was going to mention about the fact that there was that Norwegian ensemble, Johnny Hazard and uh, Born John or whatever it was. Uh, they had they did some indie rock cover of the song, I guess, that they had released on uh, a, a compilation called Shockadelica, 50th Anniversary Tribute to the Artist Known as Prince. And they made about 5,000 copies of it and put it in circulation before Prince uh, sued to have all of them destroyed. So. Uh, yeah. Uh, but you know, it, one of the thing, good things about the song is that it did. It was his first number one song ever in the UK, 
right. and, and it hit number three in the U.S. So I mean that song did did fairly well. I'm I'm it's kind of a bummer to to know that he um you know had to pretty much give up all rights to this friggin' song because of these knuckleheads over in it just doesn't make any sense. It's so annoying. You're you're right, and you know a lot of the Billboard ending charts. Um, the Beautiful Experience EP and the single, it was top of the charts on almost every list for an independent release. And this is made, what made him feel that he really didn't need Warner Brothers because he was having number ones in countries that he never had before. And this was a release that he was allowed to put out with their consent where he wasn't on Warner Brothers and he released it through Belmark Records. And of course, the version that's on the Gold Experience is different than the version that's on Belmark and all those other remixes that are amazing. The Mustang Mix, the Mustang Mix 96 that hasn't wasn't officially released but was made for Emancipation on the Deep Blue Sea in August. Um, just... <sighs> I love the song and all the different versions of it and everything else. Like I just, yeah. you know, um, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't really get old. It really holds. It's, it definitely holds. It's, it's yeah, it, 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 it it's definitely awesome. It's uh, the first time it was ever played February 13th, 1994 at Paisley park studios. It was a video that premiered, but there was no live performance at that time. It wasn't performed live until March 6th, 1994 at Paisley park studios. And the last time it would ever be played was actually his second-to-last show. It was the April 14, 2016, the first show of the two that he did that night at Fox Theater in Atlanta, Georgia. So it was a 7 p.m. show, not the 10 p.m. show, so a 7 p.m. show. So it was, in that, uh, it was in that set list, and I was there, fifth row, watching him perform it. It was pretty freaking amazing. amazing. Oh, I would love the Jam of the Year tour when he would take it out, but, you yeah. know... I never, uh, I'm just thinking about, I'm thinking about all the print shows I've been to. Um, I was never with uh, anyone during that song, but um, it just always meant a lot to me. I know there's some other songs that people love to hear. I would, you know, I wish that he would do more than just a little bit that he did when performing it, like he did on the Jam of the Year tour. Um, yeah. I'll be it wearing those lace pants that he was during the Jam of the Year tour, but um, at the Pantages that I saw. Um, but just just an amazing, amazing song, and I just always wish that he did longer versions of it because, man, the lyrics, when the day turns into the last day of all time, I can say I hope that you're in these arms of mine. Like, those are some lines that I wish that I wrote. I think I write oh, yeah. some good stuff, and I'm sure sometimes it's more cheesy than I think it is, but it comes from the heart. And it's just an amazing song, and I'm glad whoever inspired it did it. I mean, the songs I write, I never give write one song and then give it to someone else a few years later and go, oh, this, this is for you. Everything I write comes from that person. But, you know, right. Prince was, was notorious for doing that. <laughs> That's why so many women say this song is about them, and then it turns out it was about someone else years before. Yeah. But, and a lot of people are like that too. You can hear lyrics and you go, man, I wish I had written that. And for, for me, the lyric that I wish I had written was, you never would have served me coffee if I had never served you cream. I think that is, <laughs> that is little, the little greatest line. There, eh? <laughs> that is the greatest line ever. <laughs> Anyways. I'll let you have that one. Okay. The, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the other 
other version, out of all the versions that were played, all of them had the same exact people on them. It's Prince on all vocals, except for, uh, and instruments, except for uh, Ricky Peterson, Paul's brother, on uh, the additional keyboards, and James Berenger on additional guitar. So, and they, the only thing that changed between one, uh, one to the other was just who was singing it, and that's it, with the exception of the Eric Leeds version. And instead of vocals, it was just Eric Leeds playing saxophone. So that's pretty much the only difference. It was just Prince, Ricky, and James on it, and that is it. So uh, let's take a listen to one of Dr. Funkenberry's favorite Prince songs that he never dedicated to anybody. So it was probably a good thing that you went uh, to those. dedicated to one person. Okay. Well, we don't have to. Don't, don't, don't divulge who that was because you may change your mind later. No. <laughs> she knows who she is, KLF. Let's keep it going. All right. Let's, oh my God, that's twice he's got a shout out. Okay, here we go. The most beautiful girl in the world right here on Funked Up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, give me a second here. Here we go. Sure. All right, and that was The Most Beautiful Girl in the World, which brings us to the song Dolphin. You are, if you're just joining us, where the hell where have you been? We've been doing this for like a while now, so this is kind of just insane. But anyways, uh, it is the Cold Experience album chat with, uh, of course, myself and Dr. Funkenberry. Who? And, Who the uh, hell is yeah. I mean, that? Anyway, go ahead. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyways, uh, where are we at now? Oh, Dolphin. Dolphin. That brings us to Dolphin. So, Dolphin, I didn't really, this song really didn't, uh, hit me. I really didn't start liking this until many, many, many years later after it was released. I don't know why. I just really just gravitated to it, to it just recently. There's, and that, a lot of this, a lot of songs have, have hit me like that, where it's kind of like this stuttered effect. Which is one of the reasons why I love kind of revisiting his library over and over and over again is because there's songs that, like, I used to loathe the entirety of Emancipation. I didn't like any song on that album, and I don't know why. I just kind of felt like I was listening to it with, like, this, it was okay, it was good, it had some good songs on it. But, like, now there's, like, tons of songs that I love off of Emancipation. And I don't know what was wrong with my head or it was just, like, a, a phase I was in or whatever that, you know, because I came from, you know, the – I love to focus on, for me, for Prince, nobody really brought funk the way that Prince brought funk, you know. So I always had this really specific, uh, you know – genre of music that i wanted to hear from prince i wanted to hear the funk tunes from Prince. i wanted to hear him funk jam and do all that stuff and you know you really didn't get a whole bunch of that on on emancipation you know but then as i started listening i realized that it was just kind of under you know in different clothes like uh you know face down and things like that but this song just kind of hit me in just a, a weird spot and it was just i don't remember where i was or exactly what i think it was i watched the video and the video wasn't anything special. It's just kind of like a camera panning around them playing. But it was just something about the way that it was it was played, the way that it was filmed. It just kind of had a different effect on me, and I just really just started liking this song. And it was released as a promo single in the UK, but only on cassette, strangely enough. And it was also included at that uh, Ulysses show that we were talking about before. We talked about that show quite a bit uh, on a previous album show. Uh, really bizarre. Uh, 
stage show that they did or at Glam Slam. A- anyways, and um, it was during a segment titled Lotus Land in, uh, in that show. And the promo video was used as the first video ever to appear on VH1 Europe. Um, and it was also used on the release of the Undertaker video. Now, there was an audio version of the Undertaker uh, album or you know set of songs or whatever that was supposed to be released, but that never, never happened. Uh, of course, most of us fanatics have already heard a majority of that album as it was. And he performed this song on December 13th, 1994 on The Late Show with David Letterman. And uh, with, he performed it with the new power generation. And when introducing him, David Letterman jokingly uh, referred to the delay of the you know, release of the album. He goes, uh, and this is, he's playing Velvet from the CD that will never be released or something along those lines. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, I'm sure he was put up to that by Prince. Um, but the, the performance featured an interpretive dance by Maite Garcia. And, uh, and of course it ended with Prince laying down his guitar and putting a finger to his head as a gun and then pretending to shoot it. And then he collapsed in Maite's arms and then, uh, Coco, his bodyguard came out and, and dragged him off stage. Another interesting thing was that, um, you know, Morris Hayes had said they came up with the ending, all that stuff at the ending about the fingering and the, and the, all that stuff and all that he, he came up with it literally right before they were about to go on stage. He said, he said he didn't want to shake Letterman's hand. Uh, Morris, Morris Hayes says he didn't want to shake Letterman's hands. We had rehearsed what we were going to play, but as we were standing at the door ready to go, when the commercial break was over, he says to me, do you have that gunshot sample? And I said, uh, yeah, I, I could get it. And he said, okay, we're going to cut the second verse and go straight to the bridge. I'm going to put my finger up to my head, and you're going to hit the sample, and then Coco is going to drag me off. And then he says, no mistakes. <laughs> so, a little bit of a quite of a story going on, uh, going on behind Dolphin. And a lot of people don't know this. But if you listen very, very closely, you'll hear somebody very, very familiar in that uh, in that mix, and that is Mr. Lenny Kravitz. And Lenny, okay. Kra- and Lenny Kravitz sings background vocals on this song, Dolphin, but he is uncredited. And one of the reasons why he's uncredited is because he was on a competing uh, album label. Um, and he's also on another track on this uh, song, uh, on this album as well. He's also on Billy Jack Bitch. So he's so Lenny's on two songs on this album, which is you know great because I think this is a towards the beginning of Lenny Kravitz's career, anyways. I mean, this is you know he's maybe what second album or third album, maybe second album, I think. Um, so yeah, to be embraced by Prince is a pretty awesome thing. You sound like you got a story uh, behind Dolphin. Yeah, sorry if anyone's hearing me eating. I checked my blood sugar while we we're doing this, and it dropped to fifty nine. So I needed to eat real quick. No, it's all good. Hearing that, I apologize, um, but I, it's better than going into a diabetic coma while doing the show. Yeah, um, definitely. So yeah, we heard the version from you know Paisley release before, and then look that Letterman performance, like. You know, the show starts off and it's like Paul Schaefer introducing Prince to Letterman going, you know, artist only known as Prince here, the artist currently known as Pinhead, and then Dave doing a spit check. But the entire show, Dave, along with uh, another alter ego, which was unshaven and recorded beforehand, they're making fun of Prince the entire show. They like he, there was like symbols given out for for David to hold up while talking about Prince, and then some of them had extra parts on it. 
so they were making fun of that. And then the guy, like, the other David was like, hey, who's that guy coming on? And he's like, he's this. And he's like, can we call him Prince? And he's like, no, you have to do this. He's like, I'm going to call him Prince. The entire thing, they're just making fun of his name. And then Prince comes out, does an amazing performance of Dolphin. But, of course, he doesn't want to shake Dave's hand after all that crap he was talking about in the entire show. And it just, it just hurts. It hurts my soul in the sense of... Here's Prince when he comes out in the opening lines to the song that came back as a dolphin. Would you be my friend? Would you let me in? And he looks up to the crowd, and I just feel this hurt from him. And this is this is why Prince was the greatest performer of our generation, and there'll never be another one like him. Because you feel that. And it hurt me to know that he was hurting. And here's a song about rebirth and all this stuff. I came back as a dolphin. Would you let me in? Would you be my friend? And how beautiful do the words have to be before they conquer every heart, before someone doesn't make fun of someone because they changed their name to an unpronounceable symbol. But an amazing performance. There was someone um, that saw it. They loved it. They were, you know, a metalhead, but they loved that kind of music, like their favorite group was Van Halen, and of course, the Daily Roth version, not Van Hagar. Um, but that song, that performance, yes, it's missing the second verse, which sucks, but, I mean, look, it got... It got play out of David because they come back from the commercial break and David keeps playing the loop of him being carried off stage by Coco. And then Ann Leibowitz, who was the next guest I was supposed to be on, like she starts trying to walk out because she's waiting and it, her time is being cut because David is so enthralled with the uh, prince being carried off stage. And then you see, because you, see, you never see that where someone's behind the curtain or whatever, they're coming out. Anne was coming out because she's spending so much time talking about that whole thing with Coco. But it made a moment, but I felt for Prince so much on that, that he was being ridiculed in the media. And Dolphin was such a great song. Well, and it wasn't just David. I mean, if you look at, if you go back to that period of time, you, you could not turn a channel where, you know, people were just, I think people that weren't, and you've heard me say this before, that we we are in a bubble. We are, as Prince fans, we are in this bubble, and people that are outside of this bubble just can't wrap their heads around any of this stuff. They can't wrap their head around why this guy's changing his name. They can't wrap their head around, you know, is he gay? Is he not gay? And they It's like all these things that we all know when we are just, you know, uh, absorbing it and, and listening and kind of just appreciating his art for what it is. Just we just people are just not it's just people cannot get it. People are just and it's they it's it's up to us to kind of be able to explain it. And that's kind of why we do these types of shows is to kind of, you know, help people understand what it was that was going on during this time and and why things were being released and why songs were being you know delivered in a certain way. I mean that that's what this is all about. And um, I think it's pretty it's it's pretty awesome actually that you know we're able to kind of talk about these things in retrospect and kind of you know get a little bit more of a, a picture as as to what was what was going on and because you know a lot of people didn't know anything else about what was going on with the David Letterman show. They just know about what happened a little bit before and a little bit after and that's about the extent of it. They didn't you know, you'd have to watch the whole entire episode to kind of know that, you know, David was poking fun at him the whole time. But you know what? So was everybody. It seemed like Prince seemed to be the butt of the joke 
on it seemed like every single late night host had something to say about the name change uh, you know and then you had all that stuff with the going on with the Rosie O'Donnell I mean even the people that he was trying to embrace and assist and, and kind of give a little bit of help to um, you know st- they didn't get it either and uh, you know sometimes generosity is wasted on people you know it's just kind of ridiculous but it, it is yeah, it, it's crazy. It, the, the first time it was played, and actually that time on December 13th, 1984, that's when the date it was for the Late Show with David Letterman at the Ed Sullivan Theater in New York. That was the first full performance of that song, and technically it wasn't the first full performance because we just noted it was missing the entire second verse. However, right. on uh, the last time he would play it would be May 12th, 2013 at the Ogden Theater in Denver, Colorado. So the version that you're about to hear is the gold experience version obvious it's prince on all vocals and instruments except for michael bland on the drums sunny t on bass guitar tommy barbarella on keyboards morris hayes on keyboards and of course as i had mentioned before lenny kravitz on background vocals who is um who is uncredited for obvious reasons because he doesn't want <laughs> he's he's kind of um he's kind of uh, trying to play nice with his record label as opposed to Prince who was not which is one of the reasons why it's kind of funny that these two songs that Lenny Kravitz actually performs on on these al- on this particular album was the last time that Prince and him ever worked together in the studio because of the fact that uh, Prince was kind of annoyed with him that he was just kind of letting the record you know he was kind of being you know moved around like a marionette and Prince didn't you know Prince kept saying to Lenny, you know, fight for your music, fight for your, and Lenny was like, I'm just, I'm just going to, I'm just going to kind of do what, what needs to be done here. But of course, on the same note, Lenny Kravitz isn't turning out the volume of music that Prince is, so he doesn't quite have the same exact issues and problems that, that Prince has. So it's kind of a little bit, yeah, it's kind of a short-sightedness there. There is an Undertaker version to this, and it's, uh, that we're not playing, but that's Prince on vocals and Michael Bland on drums and Sonny T on bass guitar. So a really slimmed down version. Uh, if you've ever heard that, it's really strong and rocky because it's just a three piece. And man, what a version that is. But that's not one we're playing. We're still playing a pretty phenomenal one. What's that? I thought you were going to say something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Here we're going to, let's play it. It's Dolphin right here on Funked Up. Enjoy. Yeah. All right. Uh, all right. And that was Dolphin. Pretty amazing tune. And we've got, uh, let's see, we can go, let's look at some other songs here. Which uh, we got another NPG segue here, an NPG operator segue here, and then of course we're going to be talking about now. Uh, for those of you just joining us, I don't know why I have to keep on saying this, but it is what it is. It's the Gold Experience. We're talking about the album. It's the album chat with myself, Mr. Christopher, and Dr. Funkenberry. Uh, what's up? What a name. I know. Well, it's if pretty- John Cena can be the doctor of thugonomics, there you go. Well, it's 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 better than it's better than uh, <laughs> what's that? What's that nurse or whatever that does the doctor or whatever that her whole entire career is popping pimples, whatever. <laughs> it's like I don't know. It's just it's, I don't know. It's it, some people it's just like, well, why do you got got these names? It's just doesn't make any sense. But at least Doctor Funkenberry sounds cool. I think Mister Christopher has a ring to it too. It does. Mister Christopher. It's got a ring. It's got a. It's got a. Flow. We'll have to do that. 
This is Dr. Funkenberg. You're listening to Mr. Christopher on Funkopia right now. Funked up. Yeah. There you go. There you go. That's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we got the next operator segue here. And, of course, it's just got a a keystroke. And then it says, the now experience. Uh, It says, great for dancing and improving self-esteem. And it states other titles in this category include Irresistible Bitch, Irresponsible Bitch, Irresponsible Bitch, uh, Irresistible Bitch, Housequake. That's the weird uh, <laughs> that's the weird El Yankovic version. On Christopher that you want to tell us about there's someone being irresponsible, I'm gonna put you on blast here. No, go ahead then. <laughs> that's the weird El Yankovic version, the irresponsible bitch. Uh housequake and sexy MF before stating, but that was then. This is now two, three, four, you know how it goes. Uh, same segue was used in uh, most of the live performances, uh, and it used to precede uh, Days of Wild, uh, as included <clears throat> on Crystal Ball. Um, and then, of course, it ends with the operator saying, welcome to the dawn. You have just accessed whatever, and then the last heart begins or whatever. Um, but let's talk about now. So we'll, we'll play that segue, and then we'll play now. But uh, for right now, we're talking about, talking about now. The song refer. One thing is always kind of weird to me is that the the song refers to the year 1994. Uh, of course, that probably because of the fact. First off, it's probably because of the fact that he thought it was actually going to be released in 1994 along with the album Come, and it didn't. Um, I find the year reference in this song a little bit unusual, anyways, because you know Prince has got a pretty tight pre-constructed box the way that he kind of creates songs and whatnot, and whenever he, I I would just seem like. Putting a, a specific timestamp on a song just seems very, very outside of the things that Prince normally. Th- I mean, outside of songs like 1999, I mean that was very strategic uh, and a brilliant feature-proof song. I mean, because even when he felt, you know, kind of fell off a little bit in the 90s, as far as the charts were concerned, you know, you knew that 19, you knew that when 1999 came around, when 1999 happened, that that song was going to be played incessantly. From yeah. not only on New Year's Eve when you're going from 1998 to 1999, but also from 1999 to 2000, and then of course you know during that whole entire year, and it was going to resurge his whole entire thing, and it did. It it literally did. I, I really kind of feel like that whole. I mean, it was just the party to end all parties. I mean, I wish I was there, but um, and of course the lyrics also refer to 99, who was a uh, a rapper. And a poet that um, Prince had recorded with in the 93, 94 section. He was also mentioned in the studio version of the song uh, Days of Wild. But mm-hmm. the 99 that he's referring to is not the year. It's actually a rapper named 9990, 90 spelled out N-I-N-E-T-Y dash nine. Um, and uh, as mentioned, this was one of the songs on that tape that aired on those European radio stations. That This was also placed on that uh, on that. 10 minute remix cassette tape that he sold to European stations and it was, it was played over there. And, uh, man, what this song is just so powerful. This one has just got such a big hollering bounce, you know, crowd chanting type of thing going on. It's really awesome. Uh, what do you have any stories about now? When's the first time you remember hearing this tune? I'm just trying to think of lyrics to the new song I'm going to write called the irresponsible bitch. Um, <laughs> We gotta write it. We have to write it. <laughs> I'll, I'll, 
I've been charging around 20 to 30 minutes for me to put out songs lately when you're uh, inspired by stuff it's easy um, now with now you know the first time I heard I believe was on Soul Train then the beautiful experience version man do I wish I would have heard this song live and here's another thing about like yes like you know he's mentioning 1994 and all this stuff or whatever and then 67 67 freaks dance like that in heaven see what was happening and especially with mixtapes in LA that were just now becoming popular is that they were dropping that they would drop the year and that was that started happening more and more after 96 we'd have Dark Child 96 or uh, Busta Rhymes like 98 you know Dre 99 they were they were constantly doing that but he was doing it before because I think that he he was on top of stuff, especially the mixtape um, life that was going on at Swap Meets and other places in L.A. at that time, and I'm sure other places as well. <clears throat> but when it comes to now, the song is just energe so energetic and so whatnot. Of course, him lip-syncing on Soul Train isn't like the best version to see it from, but you see him sipping that water and then he freaking, um, you know, stage dives and gets caught by the audience. That was pretty tight. The song is just grooving, and then, yeah, you can put it with Irresistible Bitch, Housequake, and Sexy MF. It's just those things that it's an ultimate banger, you know? Of course, not at the, maybe at the clubs that we go to and the clubs you go to in Atlanta, but, you know, the other clubs, they're not touching now, but that song is a banger, and it's just positivity, and a lot of the other things, especially, like, when I'm trying to go through being healthy and other stuff, they're like, it's flyer to be hungry than fat. Straight up, take it from this sister, y'all take it from that. And the ride up front is definitely better when you have been in the back, you know? Just, just the lyrical content of stuff, and there'd be people criticizing that, oh, he lost his way, like he's, he's writing the lyrics. I'm like, it's still grown up, and it's still coming from a different place that makes you think. Take it from this history, I'll take it from that. It's flyer to be hungry than fat. And it is. I, I have to say as much as, um, you know, maybe it isn't the healthiest thing, but when stuff fits better, that's all I can say. But I love the lyrical content. I love the energy of now. And it's one of the songs I wish that I would have been able to see him do live for sure. And I love how this kicks off the second half of the album. Yeah, I think what's also interesting about this is that, you know, the amount of energy that is on this is just sick. And what's what's even more crazy is that Prince plays everything on this song, on the recording that you're about to hear, with the exception of the horns. This is this is Prince on everything, on all the instruments, drums, bass, guitar, everything he's doing it. So that live, over-the-top, insane, you know, just that that feeling is just, it's all Prince. The only people that are on this song other than him are Michael B. Nelson on trombone, Kathy Jensen on baritone saxophone, Brian Gallagher on tenor saxophone, and Dave Jensen and Steve Strand on trumpet. That's, I mean, other than that, as far as all the stringed instruments and stuff, that's all Prince. And uh, so let's play it. We're going to play a little bit of the, the segue out front, and then we're going to play now. It's all Prince. The first time this song was ever played was February 13th, 1994 at Paisley Park, and the last time would be in 1996 in January on uh, the 20th at Yokohama Arena in Yokohama, Japan. Here it is, the segue, and then now, right here on Funked Up. All right. I don't have anything on this uh 319 I, I literally have nothing on this 
uh, for whatever yeah, reason. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know if you have a story to fill in, but I have nothing on this song. It's like, I have freaking nothing. <laughs> All right, that was Now. Freaks on the floor. Freaks on the floor. Freaks on the floor. And which and brings us... That's scream, man. That's right. And which brings us to uh, another segue, the MPG operator, and then 319. Now, um... In this particular segue, it's just the operator. It's got the keystroke thing, as I'm just listeners saying, you know, welcome to the beautiful experience. And then um, it's it's eventually it's a skit in which Prince calls a hotel and asks for room 319, and the receptionist speaking in French connects the call, begin and which begins the track of, of 319. The earlier configurations of the album, the MPG operator segue ended directly after the listener changes the selection. The phone call skit was included as an opening tr- opening of the track 319, I guess, in some of the live stuff that was going on. Now, many people haven't even... Uh, the first time you, every, anybody ever heard this song, 319, was in that uh, movie Showgirls. It was in the uh, 1995 Paul Vort, uh, Vorhoven movie, Showgirls. And uh, Prince said that even when uh, he wrote it, it was actually inspired by Elizabeth Berkley, who was in the movie. And a very... Uh, whew, Steamy Elizabeth Berkeley. She was man. That movie right there is uh, my goodness. It was a horrible movie. It was the yeah. worst, worst acted movie ever. But if you're watching it for specifically for the content, it was pretty good. I don't think I made it through the entire movie yet. To be honest with you, it's pretty. Uh, yeah, if you're watching it late night and you're just kind of looking for a little inspiration, that's it's it's got some good stuff for what christopher come on this is a family you got show. you gotta get yeah you gotta get through the first uh first 45 minutes of it and then after that it's a roller coaster ride of nothing but yeah, I nude, nudity and whatnot <laughs> yeah i mean <laughs> yeah anyways so 319 first time it was ever played june 10th 1994 i think i think we're gonna dig ourselves a grave with this song so let's just uh move on june 10th 1994 glam slam miami beach Last time, uh, it only was very tr- 1996 February. Neil S. Yeah. Bladesdale Center in Honolulu, Hawaii. Was last yeah, time I there. mean, look, the version they did on the American Music Awards when they did that little gold medley after the purple medley. You know, that's my first time hearing hearing. It's like he's saying, is he saying betcha you got a body by God, or is he saying you know betcha you got a money maker? You know, because my day in that those those pants and the ridiculousness of them. And then she, every time she would bend over, Dick Clark, they, they were pulling the cameras back. Like you couldn't get a good shot of what was going on. All of a sudden you're in the back of the freaking thing because it's too much booty in her pants, I guess. Um, but 319 is the inspiration for everyone on Facebook when they stay inside a hotel room that if they get the room number 319, oh, I got a post for Facebook I can share now, room 319. <laughs> but obviously there was a different, there was a few different things going on in Prince's room 319. Have you ever been to kiss another girl on the dance floor? All right then. <laughs> I never, the only thing I ever lucked out with was that I had, at uh, one point in time my address was 1999. Uh, I lived on uh, this road that's out in, in the middle of it, in down, downtown Atlanta. And then my mm-hmm. wife's uh, grandparents lived. Their address was thirty-one twenty-one. So that was, that was that's cool. That was the extent of you, you and uh, Doug Heffernan. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, the recording personnel on this. Prince, all vocals and instruments, except for Michael B. on the drums, Sonny T. on the bass guitar, Tommy Barbarella on keyboards, Mr. Hayes on keyboards, and Ricky Peterson on additional keyboards. And, of course, you have the new Power Generation horns, which are Michael B. Nelson on trombone, Kathy Jensen on baritone sax, Brian Gallagher on tenor sax, and Dave Jensen and Steve Strand on trumpet. Let's play it, shall we? The segue, and then 319, right here on Funked Up. Right. We got a little bit of 319 in there. We got a little story. Yeah, we kind of, that's, that's all. Sometimes I had to flesh it out. It's going to be the same way with Shy. I, just, I think I have like a half a paragraph on Shy here. I don't really have a whole bunch on this either. I got enough so, stuff on Billy Jack Bitch and I Hate You. Not a lot on Gold, though. Um, but Gold's going to be oh, okay because I kind of flesh it out with the uh, Segway stuff beforehand. So right. we, we can barrel through this. All right. Uh, we only got a few more songs. An MPG, uh, the uh, Shy. Billy Jack Bitch and uh, I Hate You. Yes, four four more songs. But so this is yeah. it's going pretty good. This is pretty cool. All right. Where are we at? Shy, let's go back over here. All right. And that was 319. You're listening to the Gold Experience album chat with yours truly, Mr. Christopher and Dr. Funkenberry in the house. I'm sorry, the his house. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. Live from the Palladium. Um, <laughs> <laughs> next comes up is an NPG uh, operator again. This chick won't shut her face. It's all good. Uh, <laughs> you're interrupting the songs. Uh, anyways, after some sound effects and some short circuiting and computer errors, the operator in a distorted voice repeats please access another experience. And then a vaulted door sound effect leads into the track, Shy. Um, Shy was supposed to, um, it was not originally on this album. Days of Wild was supposed to be here, uh, which I wish they would have left in place. That would have been amazing. Could you, I mean, Days of Wild right after that, after now, and then 319, and then, oh, oh my God. Uh, I, now and I think the live versions that I've heard had now and Days of Wild, like back to back. Um, those were just sick, but shy ultimately replaced Dave's of wild in this album. And, uh, the bass on the song is just ridiculous. It just kills it. Rhonda Smith, uh, who obviously many of you know, as a bass player for, for Prince for a lot of different albums, like rainbow children and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, she told bass player magazine, I called Prince's bass technique, dirty funk because there was a sloppiness to the way that he played. And that's what gave him his sound. It's meatier, dirtier, and fuller. It's a feel thing. And when you think about Prince's, um, um, we're not talking about it. We're outside of the quote now. When you think, I never think about Prince's bass playing. I always think about La La La, He He He, the extended version of that song when he's just like, can you just play the, give me this, and bop, 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 bop. You know, that whole entire bass solo that happens in La La La, He 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 is one of the most amazing things. It's just, it's more, his style is more of a, it's kind of more of a slapping, slapping bass thing. He's just really just popping it. Just really, he does. It's not the same thing. Like when Larry Graham plays the bass and he he pops, he hits it with his thumb. He'll like he holds the string tight and he just pops it with his thumb. Prince plucks it, so it's not even a. It's kind of like he's using like the corner of his his thumb or his finger to just really just pull and pop the string, which yeah. is just he's got this really distinct. 
because he's a guitar player, so he's he just uses his his fingers differently. He kind of takes some of his guitar playing prowess and kind of moves it over uh, into the same bass realm, and it gives it a really distinct sound that I just think I I love watching him play bass. But a lot of people have never seen him play bass. I I've never seen him play bass live in in concert ever. I've never seen him play bass. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't I don't. I don't know why. <laughs> I just maybe it was just the shows I was at. He just didn't do it. Um, um, yeah. And the thing is, is that there was some review of like a preview before the Holy Trans came out, and some reviewer. Now I don't know where the heck he is, but they called Shy Prince's answer to Michael Jackson's "You Are Not Alone." Uh, what? What exactly? The person obviously didn't hear the song; they were just guessing or whatever. I mean, Shy is cool for its own and is showing Prince's songwriting ability again, along with his bass playing and just being able to do certain things. And yes, like it's unfortunate we have to think about where Days of Wild would be on a certain project, and of course you want that. Of course, the live version of Days of Wild and a beautiful experience is so much more powerful than the studio version. And it's one of those things, just like with Fury and other things that you were discussing earlier. But yeah, you were not alone. <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah. Say about yeah, it's not even close. It's not even close. The only the only two people on this song are obviously Prince on all vocals and instruments, except for Maite on some sampled vocals, uh, and even that is assumed. Uh, they don't really know if that's actually Maite or not, according to uh, where is he? I guess I saw that on Prince Vault. I guess the first and only time this song was ever uh, played live was September 9th, nineteen ninety five, at Paisley Park in Chanhassen. So let's give it a listen. It's Prince's answer to Michael Jackson's You're Not Alone, it's shy right here on Funked Up. Even right. <laughs> here it is on Funked Up. Uh, okay. And that was shy. <laughs> Prince's answer to Michael Jackson's You're Not Alone. <laughs> It doesn't even sound right coming out of my mouth. It doesn't even make any sense. That's what she said. <laughs> oh, my God. It's a family show. Family show. All right. So. Uh, after dark. It's, anyway. Yeah, it's after dark. It's it's late now. So if you're still listening, you're, you <laughs> don't make any sense. Uh, which brings us to the next Gold Experience album chat is what you're listening to. Mr. Christopher, Dr. Funkaberry. We're uh, going over track by track and we are you know getting close to the final uh, few tunes on this album and it's a great great album and it is uh billy jack bitch on this one um billy jack bitch was supposedly uh prince denies this but everybody else says it is absolutely positively true um, he just didn't want uh i guess he probably didn't want any kind of defamation lawsuit to be uh, presented or whatever but billy jack bitch was written in response to minneapolis columnist cheryl johnson also known as cj uh who for some reason had an obsession writing negative things about prince in her columns uh, like every other week she was always writing something that had some kind of bad bad slant on anything that he did matter of fact when he changed his name to a symbol she even nicknamed him symbolina and uh he eventually got fed up and 
wrote Billy Jack Bitch. Uh, as I said, however, in an interview, he did deny that it was about her. She even came to one of his shows and Prince had her removed. So <laughs> there's that. But after he after he passed away, she said it was her favorite Prince song ever. She said, no, as I have told those who ask, it did not bother me to be on the other end of his name calling. I fared much better than Darling Nikki. And how interesting is it that I was an irritating inspiration to Prince? Uh, I guess yeah. congratulations. Uh, <laughs> wow. Well, okay. Uh, I mean, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Right. Whatever. It's you just what a I, I prefer my shout out during San Diego, 2013, um, the Live Out Loud tour with Third Eye Girl. During Plectrum Electric, goes, Where, what is Plectrum Electric? Funk and Berry Baritone. I'll prefer that over Billy Jack Pitch, but to each her own. Yeah, that's right. It's, it, it's, yeah, it, it, we'll take, we'll take that any day for sure. I mean, look, Billy Jack Bitch is just, it's a song like when I'm angry that I want to listen to that I'll play a little bit louder. Same with Kim by Eminem. Albeit, it's interesting, like, as I got older now, as I got older, as as I got old, as as now I'm older. Kim, when I listen to Kim from Eminem, I feel sorry for him that he had all that anger inside him and stuff, and it makes me sad. And of course, it would be like a song I play with Billy Jack Bitch that I'd be angry. I don't feel that way when it comes to the to Prince's version of Billy Jack Bitch. Um, but there's a lot of anger and a lot of hurt that he has. Uh, whether it's about CJ or not, which we know it is about CJ. Um, you know, it's just kind of like his whole thing. It's kind of like the second second half of like, hello, you know, where he was describing people talking about him like, you know, words are weapons, you know, and they're not like shoes and all this stuff. But those words that she was writing hurt him. And the thing is with CJ, you know, the Prince people may not know this, but she's a pretty legitimate news source in Minneapolis. And um, so the legit person talking stuff about Prince all the time, people that would read her articles are like, well, it has to be true what she's saying about him and all this stuff. And of course, after Prince passed, uh, she talked crap about me and I just didn't respond back to her because I'm like, oh, you know, hey, here's someone that he, he wrote the song about talking stuff about me. It's inaccurate, but got to let it be, you know, because he would do the same thing, you know what I mean? But Billy Jack Bitch, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, but still made something funky of it, even though he's sampling um, uh, Bitch by, uh, God, why am I forgetting the name of them? Like, I'm getting another card pulled. Uh, Fishbone. I don't know what group I'm talking about. Fishbone. Yeah. Yeah, Fishbone. Uh, I should... I was I, just I, hanging. I was just hanging out with Angelo the other night, and we were we were talking about that. We were also talking about when Prince uh, Prince told the story about that he came backstage and and saw his uh, his uh, jaw harp. It's like this harp that's uh, like a harmonica, but it's uh, Prince says, "Oh, let me see that," and Angelo gave it to him and to look at. And he was like, "Oh yeah, this is really cool." And then he walked out and <laughs> and took it with him and never gave it back to Angelo. And he was like, "What? What just?" Happened. He just he just took my instrument and just he he said he took my job on harp and just walked out. I was just hanging out. Yeah, it was from uh, Fishbone's uh, Lion Ass Bitch song, and it's also that was also the song that uh, the Roots played 
when uh, that one lady that was, I can't remember who that lady was or what her significant was. Remember that whole shenanigans that happened on The Tonight Show when she came out and they played the instrumental version of Lion Ass Bitch? And uh, she was like some type of congresswoman or something. I can't remember what she was. But yeah, Fishbone's Lion Ass Bitch has kind of seen a lot of life. Was this Leno or? No, it was, it was, uh, it was um, uh, uh, Jimmy Fallon. And I think it was the Tonight Show. Well, it was it was late night with Jimmy Fallon. I think it was before it was Tonight Show. But anyways, Questlove and the crew actually got in a lot of trouble for that, and they actually had to now any single song that they play for anything they had they have to clear through the the executives or whatever. But nobody knew what it was. And then I guess there were some people that said, "Oh, that's Lioness Bitch. They're playing Lioness Bitch for this Congresswoman that's coming out." Wow, that's that's pretty awesome. I mean, uh, walked out or uh the other dude Lindsey graham anyway sorry you know, we'll you, you know it, it's it's it was it was i can't remember the woman's name we'll, 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 I'll, I'll look it up during the commercial break but it's pretty funny anyways okay. uh lenny kravitz does background vocals on this chorus as well but like on dolphin he was not credited because he was on a different record label and didn't want to cause any friction uh and as i mentioned before because of this um, it would be their only known studio collaboration, although he performed with him a few times, including the Raven to the Joy Fantastic performance that we all know and love with the sparkly blue suit, uh, where he played American Woman with him. And uh, I can't what else did he play? I think it was another one that he played with him as well. Uh, Michael B. Nelson is a co-writer on the song because the horn arrangement in the song is a song that he wrote called New Dell Inn that is on the self-titled Hornheads album. I think it was that, that was their debut album. And it also contained a portion of an arrangement from Thelonious Monk's Well You Needn't from 1994, but that was edited down enough where it didn't require any credit from him in that regard. Unless he was based in Europe and uh, went through the Swiss courts, then it may have been an issue. Uh, anyways, the people that are recording on this are Prince on all vocals and instruments, except for Michael B. on drums. Kind of sound a little bit redundant now. Sonny T. on bass guitar, Tommy Barbarella on keyboards, Mr. Hayes on keyboards, Lenny Kravitz on background vocals. That part's not redundant. And then, of course, the new power generation uh, horns, which are Michael B. Nelson, Kathy Jensen, Brian Gallagher, Dave Jensen, and Steve Strand. First time this song was played, November 2nd, 1993 at Paisley Park. And the last time... February 18th, 1996, at the Neil S. Blasdale Center in Honolulu, Hawaii. And that version at the American Music Awards where he's covered up by a blanket and all of a sudden appears and does does that little split thing, badass mofo. <laughs> Prince Rogers Nelson, the artist, the artist, Prince, whatever the heck you want to call him, badass mofo, and the choreography on that, slamming. Uh, oh yeah absolutely so here it is billy jack bitch right here on funked up all right we're gonna cut more to go okay all right and that was billy jack bitch which brings us to eyeball hate you and uh wait y'all some tight motherfuckers Uh, I hate you. Uh, it is, uh, again, you're listening to the Gold Experience album chat with Mr. Christopher and Duncan, F- Duncan, <laughs> Duncan Donuts Berry. Uh, uh, if someone used to call me Dr. Funkin Flurry, that was uh, part of Prince's crew, so it's all good. As long as you call me, I don't care what you guys call me. I got too many names. 
call me that matters. That's right. <laughs> Mr. Christopher and Dr. Funkenberry. Um, better known as uh, Mr. Pistopher and Dunkin' Donuts Berry. I Hate You was the first commercial single released from this album, uh, followed by Gold a few months later, and a remix containing a portion of the album, uh, along with a portion of the Quiet Night mix by Eric Leeds, was included as the fourth track on the Versace Experience Prelude to Gold promo cassette, given to the folks, the fine folks at the Versace Collection from the Paris Fashion Week. And the song was written for the then-Playboy supermodel Carmen Electra, a.k.a. Tara Lee Patrick, who was not ecstatic about being the source material of this particular song. Uh, Prince discovered her at a nightclub in Minneapolis and signed her to Paisley Park. He changed her name to Carmen Electra when she initially fought it. And she said, I reminded him that my name is Tara. And he told me, you look like a Carmen, so to me, you're Carmen. And so, therefore, <laughs> Carmen Electra then existed, uh, if, if there was a G in existed. Uh, after his experience, I'm sorry, after his passing, Carmen Electra opened up about their brief relationship, confessing, I don't know one beautiful woman who didn't want to be with him, but it did hurt me. It hurt me really bad. And I was too young to really communicate with him, so I just kind of pulled away. And it certainly couldn't have helped for the song to finish with the I hate you because I love you at the end over and over again. Carmen said, Carmen said it was hard to hear and it's even harder to hear the parts of the song that said it could have been a completely different way. I literally cried in front of him. I think he just wanted me to hear it and know that he was really upset. Then he flew me back to Los Angeles and that relationship was done. Um... First release off of this album, um, I don't remember the specific time. We were talking earlier today, we were talking this afternoon, and I was telling you that I think Atlanta must have been in a little bit of a black hole, either that or just was not like wandering around in the same circles or whatever, but I don't think I ever remember this specific single being released. Do you, do, was, is this release significant to you at all? Yes, I am. And Power 106 out here, the two major stations, one for LA and hip hop and one for Top and 40, they were playing it. Surprisingly, they were playing it. They were playing the edited version that was in a format, and I was just very surprised. Um, but it got play. And this song is, it's, I remember playing it. You know, because I would play Prince on purpose at the record store, especially when I didn't know anyone that liked Prince. It said for me, and I'm going to freaking promote the hell out of him. And there was, like, one couple that was, like, listening to it, like, wow, this this sounds like, you know, sounds like he's got mental problems. Like, I, I can't love you because I hate you. I, I love you because I hate you and all this stuff. And I'm just like, you never had anything like that. You ever had it where you hurt someone so much that you love that you ended up hating them, but you can't hate them because you love them? And they're like, no. And I went... Man, it must suck to be you because you haven't lived, you know, and those are just emotions. Like, look, I'd rather have love all the time, but sometimes there's peaks and valleys and you have to go through stuff. And, you know, it's a painful song for Carmen, you know, um, especially if uh, you're feeling cheated on or stuff like that, which Prince obviously felt he was in the song. And please see your name for the court, Billy Jack Bitch. Uh, just. 
interesting that Prince Prince could be very very loving as we're seeing with the most beautiful in the world very thoughtful with Dolphin and then he can be quite vindictive as we're hearing on I Hate You you know he was very vindictive and he could cut you just, just as much as CJ was cutting him with her words he was cutting Carmen uh, through this song yeah, it's pretty. It's a pretty intense song. It's definitely a hard song to listen to if you're definitely a recipient or the the source material for it for sure. Well, uh, let's see. First time it was ever played, January fifteenth, nineteen ninety five, at Paisley Park Studios in Chanhassen, and then last time was at that place, that center in Honolulu, Hawaii, in February eighteenth, nineteen ninety six. It looks like that must have been the. I'll have to look up the tour stuff, but um, that Honolulu, Hawaii, must have been like one of the last stops on some of this on this tour that was going on uh, because a lot of songs saw their last play at that facility or at that venue, whatever that Neil S. Blades, uh, Blaisdell Center is in Honolulu. A, must, a lot of songs died there. Um, the people the people that play on this song, obviously, are our favorite folks. Uh, Prince on all vocals and instruments. Yeah, he obviously wins the, wins the race for sure. Uh, Michael B. on drums, Sonny T. bass guitar, Tommy Barbarella keyboards, Mr. Hayes, Mr. Morris Hayes on keyboards, and Ricky Peterson, Paul's brother, on additional keyboards as Ricky P. Here it is, I Hate You, right here on Funked Up. All right, one more song. Awesome. This is going to end up being, no joke, this is going to be like a three and a half hour show. Because we're already at... No, it's fine. It's awesome. People love it. People love it when this stuff is this long. When we go in kind of this detail, people love it. I always think, man, if I go over an hour show, people are never going to listen to it. And then I look at like the stats on like... um, like Apple Music or you know any of the stuff like the podcast stuff and anything that's on there, and it's like people love it. They go insane. It's like we're okay, fine. <laughs> they just want more information. All right, that's all about it. I just I, wish I could get longer, but people, you know, Scotty and whatever, they can go long. You know, anyway. Yeah, it's Michael Dean. All of his. It seems like every single time he does an interview, he like sits and interviews people for like three hours three four hours i'm like how do you even get them to agree to even stay on that long sometimes you know yeah it's just kind of crazy but it's all good all right here we go and that was i hate you which brings us to the last segue and the last song on this phenomenal album of the gold experience We've been talking about every single one of the tracks on here and actually playing the tracks as well. It's yours truly, Mr. Christopher, and the phenomenally cool Mr. Dr. Funkenberry. I love the Mr. Dr. in the mail for you saying that. Thanks a lot. Actually, check your bank account. I sent it through Bell. Sweet. Oh, yes, I see it. Five cents. Got it. Uh, the, <laughs> the beginning of this final segue here includes the ending of the guitar solo from the previous track, I Hate You, uh, which is overlaid because some of the sound effects lead into a kind of a repeated distorted section that says, you have access to beautiful experience. And then uh, the operator says, welcome to the dawn. You have just access to the gold experience. Press gold to begin just before the track gold begins. Now, even though this is the last 
NPG Operator segue on this album, there were a bunch more that were actually created. There was a seventh one that was put on the MPG record sampler um, that welcomes a listener and says, this is just a sample of the many experiences the Dawn has to offer. Just before directing listeners to experience more and to dial 1-800-NEW-FUNK, uh, there was a, a MPG Operator number eight, which was um, put on the Ultimate Live Experience Tour that was actually given, that was on the same thing that MPG Records, all of these are actually on the MPG Records sampler experience except for... Um, the number, the first one, which is you have just accessed the Wild Experience, which was used as a clip after Days of Wild, and that segued into now, like we were talking about before. But they had like a bunch of other ones, a few other ones. These MPG operator segues that kind of you know set a a bunch of different things uh, that led people into Let Me See Your Body Get Loose, and uh, one that introduced a couple tracks into Madhouse's album Twenty Four that did not see the light of day. Uh, also, the ballet that did not get released for the MPG Orchestra. Uh, for There was another one that, for Kama Sutra. So there was like a bunch of different operator segues that were recorded um, during that time. But this particular one, obviously, is the final one that we'll hear on the Gold Experience before it goes into the song Gold. And it's the final song on the album and the one that Prince told the press was his next Purple Rain. Right. He said that. He said that. Well, hey, I, I like gold, especially past few months I've been going through some stuff, and it's been like a little bit of a rebirth for me. So these lyrics, like, they really resonate with me. Like, you know, there's a mountain that's mighty high. You cannot see the top unless you fly. Like, I, if it was a mohill, I would have trouble being able to move it or get around it and lose stuff. Now I feel with the tools I've been given, I can move mountains. I can do stuff. So I can reach above it. I can fly. So I've been on the, on that journey of it, of being able to find stuff and understanding that I can handle things and to not let it get the best of you. And another thing um, with the lyrics of... There's an ocean of despair. There are people living there. They're unhappy each and every day. Hell's not fashion, is what you're trying to say. I went through a miserable year last year. Um, I don't really need to get into details of stuff, but I was miserable. And there it is. They're unhappy each and every day. Now, was what I going through a choice or was it circumstances beyond my control? I think a little bit of both. Now that I have the tools with that, I know when to walk away from that and not put myself into that position anymore. Hell is not fashion. And I do not want to be unhappy each and every day. I want to be happy. So no matter how small it is, even if it's I had a crappy day or whatever, but hey, I had parking right in front of Chipotle that day. That's my positive. That's what I'm going to take out from it. And all these other things, I'm not going to focus on that negative stuff. And then one of my favorite lines, of course, you know, there's a lady, 99 years old. If she led a good life, heaven takes her soul. That's a theory, and if you don't want to know, step aside and make a way for those who want to go. I definitely want to go. I want to live the good life. I want to help out people. I want to be there for people the way that they were for me and be there for people who may not be able to be there for themselves. I would rather do that anonymously and not without any credit. Same with how Prince was doing it, how Sinatra was doing it. But 
that's the true definition to me of love for another. And was this a different, and maybe it wasn't his new Purple Rain, but to me, gold was an anthem, and I loved it, and I appreciated it. Of course, it won't be Purple Rain, but you know what he was trying to do is draw a line in the sand that this is where new music is going to be, just like on the Ultimate Live Tour, not doing any old print stuff. But these lyrics to me, especially with what I'm going through right now, um, they speak volumes to me. And I know that others can do it. Like, look, that mountain may be really high, but believe in yourself that you can fly past it or you can move it. It isn't as dreadful as you think it's going to be and choose choose and I know it's hard for some people try to choose to be happy because you have a smile on your face and that smile is a lot better when you're happy I know that you're going through things or whatnot but get the help of what you need but songs like this really touch me and it may not be the lyrical content that he had earlier with other songs on this album but it resonates with me so much because there's a feeling of togetherness and all that glitters may not be gold but we're going to make it through and maybe it'll be platinum you know what I mean right absolutely man that's yeah it's it's definitely got a great message and you know kind of you know helps people to also realize that you know a lot of the good things that that are out there and you know may not be as good as they seem so just you know be on guard with yourself and just you know it did see a life as a single uh its b-side was rock and roll is alive and it lives in minneapolis which was actually a uh an answer song to lenny kravitz's song rock and roll is dead uh, Prince had heard that song and he decided, I'm going to uh, reply with this retort. And so, therefore, you had that rock and roll is alive and it lives in Minneapolis. And, uh, right. you know, and that's and, and Prince was kind of funny that way as far as, you know, anyways, that we're, we're just speaking of the B side. We're talking about gold right now, which is the final song on here. First time it was played, May 6, 1994, at the Le in Paris, France. And then the last time it would be played, uh, one of the few songs that made it out into the 2000s, and that was May 22nd, 2012, at the All Phones Arena in Sydney, Australia. And the people playing on this are Prince on all vocals and instruments, Michael B. on drums, Sonny T. on bass guitar, Tommy Barbarella on keyboards, Mr. Morris Hayes on keyboards, and also Ricky Peterson on additional keyboards as keyboards as ricky p so let's take a listen to it right now the final song on the album preceded by the segue of course here it is gold right here on funked up welcome to the dawn yep oh, i didn't go nope. too overboard with no. stuff no it's awesome all right we're gonna come out and we're gonna close it up and that was Gold, the final album. We are finally at the end of the Gold Experience album. And uh, one of Prince's stronger albums, for sure. Kind of a little bit of a bummer that WB had sat on it for so long. Uh, it would have, I think it definitely would have had a much bigger splash and would have been more, um, had way more of an impact if warner brothers had released it the way that prince had wanted to release it however um because of the fact that he was giving him two albums at the same time um 
he would have put all of his energy definitely towards the gold experience. But if he really felt that way, he probably should just release the gold experience and left come sitting on the shelf, I guess, until he was ready to release it, I would think. Because I tell you what, you know, for him to be so excited about an album and have to kind of reserve that excitement for, you know, what the better part of a year and a half really kind of took its toll on the uh, level of success that this album could have had. But a great album nonetheless. And man, it was such an awesome honor to have the one and only Dr. Funkenberry in the house helping me out. Man, this is uh, this has been awesome, man. I'm so glad you got to join for this album. This is really cool. Thank you for asking me. I really appreciate it. Like, this era is just amazing, but I love talking with you. I love just doing this stuff, and we need to include all of us in stuff. You know what I mean? So I appreciate you including me, and it means a lot. Well, I, I'll definitely make sure that I give you a phone call if I know there's some albums come out that mean a lot to you. Uh, I know we kind of passed over the Symbol album because we had already done that one and you had some interest in that, but I'm sure there's some more coming up that you want to be interested in or, or getting involved in. And, man, I will definitely give you a call. That was a blast, man. Did you have a good time? Absolutely. And I everyone else that's listening had a great time, too. But I enjoy this very, very much. And I won't say what, what night of the week that we're recording it, but uh, it made this night of the week uh, very cool for me. Yeah, absolutely. Make sure that you head to uh, Dr. Funkenberry's website and check it out. And also on his uh, Facebook page, make sure that you support him as often and as much as you possibly can to keep all this funk alive and to keep Prince's legacy moving forward. That's what we got to do. You heard it all here. We had it a blast. We had a good time. Thank you so much for joining us here tonight on this, once again, another album chat for the Gold Experience. And as I always have to say, the Funkatopia radio show and Funked Up is in no way, form, or fashion affiliated with Paisley Park or the Prince of Prince Rogers Nelson's estate. But uh, we're going to keep on moving forward. And eventually, we all will be. That's all I got to say. Right. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. That was the album chat. Dr. Funkenberry, thanks once again for joining us, brother. Thanks for having me, everyone. Much love. Thank you. All right, man. And that's that. Cool. Now, I are you gonna uh, blah, 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 diarrhea of the mouth?